Pentos, or Pentos if you prefer, that rhymes with Mentos. The nearest free city to King's Landing. It's often embroiled in Westerosi politics as a result. It's the go-to location for exiles, or at least the first stop on their way to a fuller exile. It's arguably surpassed Tyrosh as the new home of Blackfire conspiracies. Connington, Young Griff, the Golden Company, not to mention Danny and Viserys. Tyrion goes through there as an exile. Danny's first chapters are there, of course. It's where her arc starts, as is her marriage to Khal Drogo. We have some thoughts on that, of course. It housed Magor for a time, then Damon and Lena, Bela and Reyna, and all their dragons. The list doesn't stop there. The proximity to Westeros has given us a lot of recent history to play with. But Pentos has a rich ancient history as well, involving Valyria, the Andals, and other lesser-known, perhaps supernatural elements. But just the combination of Valyria and Andalization is really unique. The region around the area is compelling and filled with fun tales and anecdotes from wars with their neighbors to the pair of Valyrian sphinxes along the dragon road, the Goyandro. Which brings us to what some of you will find most compelling of all, how Pentos plays into the story. As the place where Danny's arc begins, you best believe her story is coming back through there. It's a stepping stone away from Westeros, but also the way back to it. To go forward, you must go back is a motto of Danny's arc. And well, it's a bit foreshadowy in this case, I think, too. Events seem to be culminating there. So even if you, even without that, we would have thought she'd go back there. But there's a lot of other things happening on there as well, whether it's a reckoning for Illyrio or the city itself, or maybe the tattered prince seizes the city and maybe the reckoning comes for Pentos before Danny even gets there. And thus it'll be something like a double reckoning. Well, we've got all that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome, everybody. Back for another episode, a heavily seasoned world-building episode, but this one probably more plot-oriented than some of the free cities. We haven't covered all the free cities yet. You know, Bravos is big, Volantis as well, but Pentos is probably got as much to do with the main story as any of them, if not more so. Some of that remains to be seen, of course. We'll talk about all of that today. Sean, how's it going? I know your leg is still really bothering you. You're, we appreciate you being able to do this while being in such pain. Are you drinking anything to, to help you out there? Any milk of the poppy or milk of the almond or milk of the oat or anything like that? I had the, the naked protein tree which is kind of creamy. And there's also this V8. V8 has this line of fruit juices. One is pomegranate blueberry. And I mixed those together with the Dr. Pepper. Hmm. And it was like a float at first. It's a little bit more of this brown, homogenized, (laughs) so kind of creamy. We'll call it milk of Dr. Pepper. Uh, (laughs) Milk of Pepper. I can see there's like a purple bit at the bottom. Like it's definitely separated, like some weird chemistry experiment there. Yeah, I've (laughs) taken some ibuprofen and Tylenol and I've got, you know, I might wince every now and then, but my mobility's improving. I'm determined to get, get, not just get back on my feet, get back dancing. Yeah, well, we're all pulling for you, every single one of us, I'm sure. Go, Sean. Shout out to our good friend, Nina, who had a question on her blog that's somewhat relevant, actually quite relevant today. The question is related to parallels between Ned and how he handles Jon Snow versus Illyrio and how he handles Griff. Both have 
allegedly a lo- the child of a loved one in their f- possession, basically, in their care, and handle it very differently. It's both, both these children have a claim to the throne, to the Iron Throne, but one... Well, we're not entirely sure what Alira is up to, but it seems to be more about ambition. <laughs> Whereas Ned was trying to protect the child. Very, very different approaches. So that's a, that's a great observation by Nina, and you're going to want to read it at goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L and Alley, just like Alisan. Yeah. And of course, she has a lot of notes in our episode today, as she so often does. Great takes on Pentos and Illyrio and a lot of these other characters that are involved. This episode was voted on by patrons. Next week is not was not voted on by patrons. It's going to be a scripted episode. It's going to be available for patrons and subscribers only, which you can still get in on on our special offer deal to sign up for Patreon at $2 level before it goes away in August. Worth noting that we had our first Quiplash Hangout session, which is something that you unlock by being a patron. We must have had like... 10 people participating. It was a good time. We played some games. We streamed it to the Facebook page. Yeah. we have, Now, you can participate in those without being a patron, but you, as, an audi- as, as part of the audience, audience participation, we had about an equal number of people there hanging out and voting on the funniest answers. And that's a great time as well. I played in and won all three games of Quiplash. <laughs> and all of you that weren't there have no way to verify that. So. Other than I'm laughing at that. That's <laughs> not true. I was there. It's so funny that I would be so braggy about it because usually I'm so humble. <laughs> <laughs> if the episode ends and you're still wanting to stay in the world created by George R. R. Martin, we've got you covered with plenty of other episodes that could vault you into similar locations and places. We'll start with our trivia question, as we so often do. The Pentashi historian slash political actor Jezio Heratus wrote a book called Before the Dragons, a title that we've used, that claimed Pentos and another city were actually founded before the Freehold. What other city does Jezio name alongside Pentos as predating Valyria? Yes, yes. The first mention of Pentos, we often like to start with that. Again, I want to know, do you say Pentos or Pentos? It's not as big a pronunciation debate as Celtigar Celtigar, but I am curious what y'all would say. I think it's Pentos. Mm -hmm. And my reasoning is that it would have a second S if it was Pentos. Assuming normal phonetic rules, which we can't necessarily assume, but that's my... That's a reasonable argument. Yeah, okay. I say zebra. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay, I say zebra. No, I, I know I don't, that, except for... That's a unique just, set uh, of phonetic rules yeah. there. <laughs> I say pantus. I pronounce it Janowski. <laughs> hmm. Okay, so the first mention comes very early on because it's where we meet Danny in her first chapter, along with Viserys, Khal Drogo, and Illyrio, who is the only one of those who's actually from Pentos. A gift from the Magister Illyrio. Viserys said, smiling. Her brother was in a high mood tonight. The color will bring out the violet in your eyes, and you shall have gold as well, jewels of all sorts. Valerio has promised. Tonight, you must look like a princess. A princess, Danny thought. She had forgotten what that was like. Perhaps she had never really known. Why does he give us so much, she asked. What does he want from us? For nigh on half a year, they had lived in the magister's house, eaten his food, pampered by his servants. 
Danny was 13, old enough to know that such gifts seldom come without their price here in the free city of Pentos. Viserys, older than 13, was not old enough to know that such gifts seldom come without their price. Danny, quickly, I mean, it's immediate right away how much smarter Danny is than Viserys. <laughs> so it's a great quote showing that she's way ahead in terms of just the way of the world, intuition, human nature, lots of other things too. It's also a great sort of pun that Nina points out. It's the first example of a quote-unquote free city with nothing is given for free here, as we're just told. Like That doesn't even get into our recurring discussion on slavery in the free cities, which is a little different here in Pentos. In some ways, it's very much the same, but in some ways, it's not. So we'll get into that. So this is very close to coming all the way back around again, as I said in the intro. Danny's Ark is returning her to Pentos, and there may be a reckoning of sorts. So more to come on that as we work our way through the timeline. I want to make a little observation here. I think that some of Danny's awareness versus Vasaris's is, is not, I mean, not that she isn't smarter than him, but I think it's at least as much that he's more self-absorbed than she is yeah. and maybe a little more single-minded. He, he has this sort of mission, get back to the throne, right? And he's very, you know, full of himself, if you will, where she doesn't have a mission. She's just kind of going along and she doesn't have the same sort of arrogance he has. So she's absorbing more different things rather yeah. than just what he wants and needs. You sure. know? And I think that you might see elements of this throughout her course, right? That she has this idea of getting back to her home and her Iron Throne, but she's more aware of the other problems in these cities, the slavery. Since she's not so single-minded, she has more different things to be concerned about slavery, injustice of these different cities, for better or worse, is if she can stay that way, it might keep her on this mission of righteousness, but might keep her from getting to the Iron Throne, sure. know, which isn't necessarily the best thing in the first place. I don't know. We'll see. But. Yeah. Also, something that caught my attention that might be worse than thought, the second to last mention of Pentos in the entire series. Here we go. Supper was for language lessons. The blind girl understood Bravosi and could speak it passably. She had even lost most of her barbaric accent, but the kindly man was not content. He was insisting that she improve her high Valyrian and learn the tongues of Lys and Pentos, too. This could simply be part of her education. This is Arya, of course, we're talking about, as you could probably tell by the blind girl. Learn lots of languages. But it's interesting that Pentos is mentioned specifically. I, I may be reading too much into it, but... I wonder what's that about. Maybe they have plans for her to go there or if it's just part of her education, like I said. But the fact that it's mentioned specifically is curious. Of course, learning High Valyrian leads to the other languages. Pentos and Lyseni, those are just offshoots, bastardized dialects, you could say, of High Valyrian, I think. You could say maybe High Valyrian is like Latin. Pentos might be... Italian. Okay, you know, sure. Bros. Yeah, it might be yeah. French or whatever. But. Maybe even a little closer. But yeah, that's a great. That's a great parallel. I like that. I don't think we mentioned this in Lise because Lise is also like Pentos is close to Bravos, so that you can almost see that makes more sense. Lise is a lot farther away, so I'm not sure. But maybe yeah, it could be just a clue about what where the faceless men have their attention or something about their future. Anyway. One of the reasons it's interesting, too, is it reminds us that Pentos has their own language. That's a nice reminder. And Lysine, if we continue this comparison, it's more Valyrian because it's more Valyrian. Like the city of Lys is a deeper origins with Valyria. Now, they're both ruled, they're both ruled by Valyria. But Pentos was mingled a lot with the locals who were mostly Andals. 
and other races that have now been forgotten. And it wasn't founded by the elite. It was founded more by middle-class folks as a trading colony. So they don't care as much about the highborn blood or there just isn't as much there to be cared about. And that's really relevant for a lot of reasons that will, that will come up throughout this episode. Basically, all the dialects of High Valyrian are, can be lumped into a category called Bastard Valyrian, which, yeah, kind of like what Sean was saying with the Romance languages. Bastard Latin. Bastard Latin, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nina writes, given that there's been plenty of interaction between Bravos and Pentos in the last few centuries, it's also possible the kindly man expected Arya to run into more Pentashi words or speakers because of that. Either because more Pentashi would be expected to be in Bravos for regular diplomatic missions or trade or for a variety of reasons. Just proximity gives you all sorts of reasons to mingle. Tyrion also observes that Aegon, while still disguised as young Griff, is, quote, fluent in High Valyrian and the low decks of Pen- low dialects, rather, of Pentos, Tyrosh, Mir, and Lys, and the trade talk of sailors. Not to mention taking for him that we see on page lessons in Valentine and Miranese. We have that funny anecdote where Tyrion's like, you need a B up your nose to properly pronounce Giscard words, <laughs> which Griff laughs at. <laughs> I like that. Let's talk geography for a minute. Pentos is not quite the farthest west of the Free Cities, even though it's the closest to King's Landing. That would be Tyrosh, which is the closest to, to the landfall on Westeros. It's very close to Tyrosh is to the Stormlands and the Stepstones and Dorne. But you could draw a straight line from Bravos almost all the way straight down to Lys passing through Pentos. Yes, almost exactly a straight line from Bravos all the way down to Lys passing through Pentos. Pretty cool. So this goes to show and sets up the proximity here, basically describes the start of the geopolitical situation that has existed for thousands of years, although. Bravos is not thousands of years old, so the situation would have been different in ancient times. But as it is now, these cities are often competing over the same things. There's been endless fights over the stepstones, over trade routes, over different things here and there. And it's created some really good stories. Volantis would be the furthest away physically, but it's not the shortest or not the farthest by travel time because according to several things within the story, it's quicker to go by ship. You get to Valantis quicker by ship. So that would that says to me the farthest actual travel time would be to Kohor, which you can't take ship to get there, at least not right away. You have to walk all the way there. Remember, Danny walks that way with Drogo and the Kalasar. They pass all the way through all that, through the forest of Kohor on their way to Vase Dothrak, which is really, really far away. <laughs> and there are Valyrian roads. There's a Valyrian road that heads west or east rather, out of, no, yeah, east out of Pentos to, towards what used to be the cities of the Rhoyne and perhaps some other locations as well. And that's, of course, important because they're a trade city. They were founded as a trade city. The Valyrian roads wouldn't have been there right away. Trading by ship would have been their main deal at first, but, you know, of course, they want to do a lot of trading land by land as well. It has a sheltered harbor. You can see like a bay in there with like a small inlet. That's a perfect spot. It's, an, it's ideal. Storms wouldn't hit it as hard because the ocean wouldn't be able to rip up the shore as much because a lot of that would be, a lot of that force would be wasted on the outer banks there. And the inner bay would, would have less turbulence and less storm winds, less waves, all that stuff. Less danger, in other words. 
by the same token, it's hard to assault Pentos from the sea because they only have to defend that little narrow opening into the bay, which means you could use a smaller navy that could fight a larger navy without fear of encirclement. But despite that, currently, it's considered the most vulnerable of the free cities due to a treaty with Bravos that we'll discuss later. Keep that in mind because the vulnerability of Pentos absolutely is a feature for the story to come in A Song of Ice and Fire. And that could play out in a number of ways given we know a lot of people want to take it. <laughs> well, it might be relatively easy to take if these clues add up the way we think they do. But not without consequence. Yeah, you're right. Not right? That there's allies, there's money. You know, there's a lot of vested interests in that city. So I might be able to quickly take it, but they might not keep it or might not keep their allies if they did it. Yeah, like the Tatter Prince comes to mind as a candidate for someone that might be able to hold it for the short term, but like he could probably not hold it against the full fury of, say, Daenerys Targaryen, who mm -hmm. has not only dragons, but Dothraki and Unsullied. Like, yeah, there's no way he and his windblown and just the city of Pentos could, could stop that. They would be more likely to try to, you know, come to an arrangement, which they already wanted to come to an arrangement. They're not stupid. They're not like, yeah, let's take on Danny. Yeah. I mean, they did start off on the other side as her, but they switched. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk about the region around Pentos. It's a really cool area. And Illyrio starts it off. This is Andalos, my friend. The land your Andals came from. They took it from the hairy men who were here before them, cousins to the hairy men of Ib. The heart of Hugor's ancient realm lies north of us. We are passing through its south marches. In Pentos, these are called the flatlands. Farther east stand the velvet hills. Once we are bound. So the kingdom of Hugor, a.k.a. Andal Andalos, once overlapped a portion of what Pentos rules now. A large portion, it seems. It's now called the Flatlands, as it says, and that is pretty descriptive. It's a very flat area, very fertile. Lots of orchards and farms responsible for feeding much of Pentos. There's also mines. We know that because Illyrio has some. So it's a great supply of wealth for Dothraki calls, as well as for the Pentashi elite. Because it's incredibly hard to defend. Like, how are you going to defend the Flatlands against the Thraki? Like, that's their ideal terrain for cavalry. No wonder they come not expecting a fight. They come expecting to get paid, get bribed to go away. And yeah, that's exactly what happens. I mean, that's what Khal Drogo was doing there in the first place, basically. Nina says, this land reminds me a lot of the Westerlands. Perhaps coincidental that we see it best through a Westerman's eyes, Tyrion's. Hills to the east, fertile farmlands in the center, valuable mines in the area, a coast in the, on the west. Yeah, that's all. That is true. That's very similar. Good catch by Nina there. Like I said a minute ago, the Valyrian Road, or one of them runs from Pentos to Goyandro, which is one of the Roinar ruins. Both Danny and Tyrion take this route. In ancient times, with or without the Valyrian Road, there'd have been much trade between these two cities. After all, Pentos was founded by traders, and the Goyandro would have been one of their closest neighbors. This is like an obvious connection there. They would have been trading back and forth. Probably would have been some just regular road, maybe just a beaten path through the flatlands. It wouldn't have even necessarily needed to be anything special because it's probably pretty easy terrain, which just would increase the amount of trade passing forth between these two places. And the Roinar were renowned for their technology, their craftsman stuff, like the Pentashi would have been all over that, especially because they would have access to bigger markets. They could go to Groindro, buy stuff, then go back to Pentos and ship it all over the world. The Goyandro, me, whatever their name, however <laughs> you say they're the plural of them. So that for them to reach the world markets, they have to sail all the way south through the entire Roin, which they could 
they could do that, but probably easier to just sell it to people that have more access to the world market. So you got to think that <laughs> the Pentashi were not thrilled by the destruction of Goyandro, <laughs> even though they were part of the freehold at the time. Like, hey, we traded with them. That's <laughs> That stinks. Dang it. <laughs> And you got to remember, trade goes two ways, too. There's things they, they would have depended on things from them, too. That would have been part of their yeah. structure or organization and you know supply lines and everything. It would have been very disruptive to both Pentos and the other people that they're trading with. Yeah, and not just Goyandro. Like, they're the closest of the ruins, but they would have probably been trading with a lot of the Rhoynish cities, especially the ones on the western side of the Rhoyne. But probably all of them, at least indirectly. And there would have been rivalries, though, back between the free cities back before the doom. The open war is unlikely because they're all just beholden to the freehold and the freehold probably wouldn't tolerate that. So it, in some ways, trade may have flow, flowed more freely when they were all rolled up under the freehold in a manner of speaking because the freehold was anything but free. But you see my point. They would have, some things would have been a little smoother. Whereas now that they're independent, there's occasionally a little more friction between competing powers that be within those cities. Usually that friction is not between the, the like regular folk, but the elites that, that have that stand to gain and lose so much based on certain laws or certain trade deals or what have you. Nina also writes, there would have been more trade settlements generally then, or at least different ones that exist now. Yeah, for example, the coming of the Dothraki overran a lot of the smaller towns and fortifications. They just were wiped out and people just didn't want to live there anymore in the ones that weren't wiped out because they were afraid of what happened to the ones that were wiped out. So more of Essos turned to cities, well, big walled cities that could afford to buy off the Dothraki or maybe fight them off. Like in the case of Kohor that one time. But with the bigger, without the Dothraki, with the freehold ruling the area, there would have been a lot more towns and villages that could have been part of this ginormous trade network that probably used to exist. Now, there is still a ginormous trade network, but it's more space between the towns. It's, there's, there's too much risk for a lot of these smaller places to exist. Although we, there is some evidence that that's starting to return because the Dothraki are not quite as warlike as they used to be, which is really like, well, they're still really, 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 really warlike. <laughs> but yeah, even, even they are not quite as bad, partly because of all the technique of bribing them. That didn't exist right away. <laughs> you know, that wasn't something that just immediately popped up when the Dothraki emerged from the doom. Northeast of Pentos is the Velvet Hills, which Tyrion called disappointing. He was like, they should be called the Velvet Teats. They're so, <laughs> they're so small. <laughs> it's kind of like how he makes fun of the Roin at first. Like, this river's not that big a deal. And later he's like, oops, okay, I was wrong. <laughs> so, hadn't seen all of it yet. Yeah, he hadn't seen all of it. He may have been right about the Velvet Hills, though. But that doesn't mean they're not interesting. They're just not large, you know. And here's a quote that I think makes them sound quite interesting. They saw a circle of standing stones that Illyrio claimed had been raised by giants, and later a deep lake. Here live a den of robbers who preyed on all who passed this way, Illyrio said. It is said they still dwell beneath the water. Those who fished the lake are pulled under and devoured. The next evening, they came upon a huge Valerian sphinx crouched beside the road. It had a dragon's body and a woman's face. So those sound kind of like stories of the deep ones, which pop up all over the world in various stories. Or something like them. Actually, in a minute, we'll have a different quote that refers to them as swan maidens, which doesn't sound like deep ones at all, although it could be like a, a cousin species or an enemy of the deep ones or something like that. Who knows what great underwater civilizations go, what's been going on down there all this time? Who has, who knows? Who knows about the old 
deep one swan maiden rivalry. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> it's an ancient tale that we don't have any information on. It sounds pretty sweet, though. <laughs> and that reminds us that much of central Essos was once the Great Silver Sea, a giant inland sea, which may have been salt water or not. We don't know. A lot of ancient plains in the real world were once seafloors. Like, that's true of the Great Plains in the U.S. That's, you can find sea fossils there, you know, like in the middle of the continent. But that's because similar stuff happens and in, in, happened in, in this setting. Not to mention the Sarnath connection, which literally had deep one type creatures coming out of the water to attack people. The doom that came to Sarnath being a Lovecraft story and, and something we talked about in the Kingdom of Sarnor episode, as well as in the Ib episode, I believe. The Ibisode, as is properly referred to. The Sphinx. Now that we hear in the fuller version of that anecdote, Illyrio says the Dothraki carried the male Sphinx off back to Vestothrak, leaving the female Sphinx behind. That couldn't have been that long ago. I mean, maybe three, four hundred years, so a, a substantial amount of time, but the Sphinx might have sat there for like a thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand. I mean, the great Sphinx in, in Egypt is thousands of years old, so not strange at all to think about something like that. If you get a real world Sphinx that's been there thousands of years, I mean, it's nothing to think about that here in Essos, right? <laughs> that one was there for at least a thousand and one years. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so that's kind of neat. Of course, that's very symbolic of the, they, the female Sphinx, if that's meant to, it's a dragon Sphinx sitting on a plinth, is meant to indicate Daenerys. And Tyrion even sees it as a good omen. Danny wasn't carried back to Vastothrak by the symbol of that. But she has been carried back to base Dothrak. At least it looks like she's about to be. And then, well, we'll see what happens next. But, yep. The Dothraki, they're about to be taught a lesson in, what, feminism, I suppose. <laughs> to the southeast lie the so-called Golden Fields, an area made fertile by the Rhoyne. This would have been another trade partner long ago and perhaps an area they'd have tried to move in on after the fall. That'd be one good thing for them. Like, well, we can't trade with Goyandro anymore but we can take their land, the land that they were farming and that we were trading with them. Well, that we can leave, maybe that's our silver lining is we can own this territory now because there's no one else to claim it or no one big enough to claim it besides us. So they, so they may have come out ahead of that after all. But since then, there's been lots of warring over these territories. Pentos is surrounded by extremely fertile regions in every direction, including West because the sea is fertile and it's especially for them with their bay that they probably get quite a lot of fish out of with less risk than a lot of fishermen would take because, again, it's protected, sheltered from the, the worst parts of the ocean. But these war areas have since been warred over by the free cities, especially Bravos has been a problem for Pentos in recent centuries because Bravos is superior to them militaristically, has gotten the better of it in, in a number of ways. And that's pushed them back a bit. So Bravos has kind of dominated Pentos somewhat to the south. They've fought a bit with Mir. And this seems to be more of an even balanced arrangement. I don't, at least not recently, we haven't seen any massive incursions on either side. Certainly not recently, because the Pentashi military is tiny. Yeah. Now, referring back to the map briefly, briefly the, the so-called golden fields are almost exactly equidistant between Mir, Norvash, and Kohor, too. They're in that like non-forested area. So you can imagine that they would all want the golden fields. I mean, it's the golden fields. That's <laughs> like, it just sounds really valuable. And yeah, like all that food. Yeah, 
there's been fights over that. It didn't occur to me until just last night, so I didn't get to research it very deeply. But in my mind, I think, or I think in George's mind, Pentos is a parallel to Genoa. I think City of traders, yeah, right? Bravos is probably Venice, right? Sure. There's some pretty apparent parallels there. And Venice and Genoa were sort of rivals, rival yeah. cities. And there's a lot of parallels that Genoa was like, it's weird to me, in fact, that it's not a better known city. I guess, you know, in modern times, it's not as important. But through history, it's up there with like Rome and Paris as far as its importance in trade. And it, one of the first banks ever formed was there. They were the financial backing to the Habsburgs. I think they still are the, the biggest trading port in the Mediterranean. You know, it's, 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 it's hard to fully understand the, the importance and relevance that city has had over the centuries. But it's never had like a huge, strong army. And it's been taken, annexed, sacked several times. You know, it seems like, you know, once or twice a century on average, but keeps bouncing back as this powerful trade entity between its position as a port, its reach, its financial institutions. It's had a lot of powerful influence. And point being it, this is all Pintos, right? Almost yeah. everything I'm saying like lines right up with Pintos. So You're very right. That is, those are it would have very strong this, parallels. Uh, it would have this same sort of meshing of cultures and languages and travel and trade and everything that ethnic background and, and so on. I, I know I need to look into it more, but I'm confident there's, there's probably some more detailed parallels that I haven't come up with. If, but bet someone out there is an expert on Italy or Genoa say could probably Brand- fill us in even more. Say Brandilyn Price in the chat said, "Yay, Genoa recognition! Appreciate that, Sean." So already nice. someone. Very good. <laughs> cool. Thanks for that, Brandilyn. Let's talk about the founding and people of Pentos. Here's a quote from "The World of Ice and Fire." Pentos is the nearest of the free cities to King's Landing and trading ships pass back and forth between the two cities on an almost daily basis. Founded by Valerians as a trading outpost, Pentos soon absorbed the hinterlands surrounding it, from the Velvet Hills and the Little Rhoyne to the sea, including almost the whole of the ancient realm of Andalos, the original homeland of the Andals. The first Pentoshi were merchants, traders, seafarers, and farmers, with few of high birth amongst them, perhaps for this reason. They were less protective of their Valyrian blood and more willing to breed with the original inhabitants of the lands they ruled. As a consequence, there is considerable Andal blood amongst the men of Pentos, making them perhaps our closest cousins. Yeah, you really don't see this blending of Andal and Valyria anywhere else. I mean, there is some blending of it elsewhere. But this is the hub of, of that connection. Because usually, because the Andals mostly fled the Valyrians. They mostly ran away from them. Like, we can't stop you. We're leaving. They fled to Westeros, very famously, the coming of the Andals, because they couldn't stand against the Valyrian freehold. It was just too powerful. So this is an exception of sorts, where it came about because the Valyrians that came to this area that became Pentos weren't coming as conquerors originally. They were coming as traders and trying to set up a trading outpost. And they worked, apparently, from what we're told, worked with the locals and mingled with them and interbred with them rather than conquering at all. Now, there are different takes on this. There is some evidence that there may have been some fighting, but not much evidence. And we've, we hear this one. It's mostly just speculation. So there's a very good chance that it started off relatively peaceably. Sure, there was some cutthroat business stuff back then. I'm sure people were cutting each other out of deals and doing some underhanded stuff to, to get the 
most money in certain situations, but, but they probably weren't starting wars and the, the violence would have been kept on a pretty small scale, I think. And of course, we also must remember, as I said about Bravos, it's in this quote, it says they had most of the ancient realm of Andalus at the time. So most of Northwestern Essos would have been there. So Pentos in ancient times would have waxed way more powerful. They've since had to dial it back because Bravos rules most of that territory now. And Bravos is just a lot mightier than them for a lot of reasons. As far as the size, now, hmm, Astapor is used as a parallel in terms of population size. It's bigger than Astapor, maybe similar in size to say Lease or Karth number of people, but we, you know, we don't really have great data on that. This is sort of ballparking it. I don't think George has great data on it. Yeah, right. He doesn't bother. (laughs) He's ballparking. (laughs) So they're called Pentashi now, but they were once a mixture of Andals, Valyrians, slaves from different places would be mingled in the bloodlines as well. And just other peoples, like I said, I think I mentioned before, there would have been some, some races that have been long forgotten. Some of which might be supernatural, like the hairy men of Ib, but those were not as likely to be invited to the party, so to speak. It sounds like humans and the hairy men didn't really get along so well and, and saw each other as like us or them type <laughs> scenarios. Like, well, yeah, we got to kill them all or they're going to kill all of us. So not a lot of agreement or peace between that. So this is, so this is different, like we said, with, from Leeson that there was the, the super rich types founding that, whereas this is more middle-class folks. And that's almost like Nina says, it's almost a sense in that description that Pentos thrived and dominated somewhat in spite of his origin, its origins, or at least without owing much to them. Pentos doesn't seem to have as much connection to the freehold. It, it doesn't, there's, no, there's not a lot of stories of it getting help from the dragon lords or this and that. It just seems to have been a, like, we send you some taxes and get left alone, and that's about it kind of situation. I mean, it was really far from the freehold, too. That's Nina's saying this in, in reference to that passage we just read, yeah. which is from Eandel, right? The author of the World of Ice and Fire book, right? And so they would have a bias, right? Yes. They would want to attribute the success of a great city to royal blood, Valerians, or, or not so much to the hard work of the average person, right? Yes. Not, they wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> like, somehow these dumb old merchants made a successful city without any <laughs> royal blood to lead them. To, you know. How is it possible? I don't know. <laughs> Surely because of the great location. Yeah, it couldn't be because of their hard work or anything like that or their capability. No, just... But that. But the location is important. I mean, you, we've heard... That For sure. You, you hear that's... What's the top three most important things for business? Location, location. That's still true even in the era of the internet because how people find you on the internet is important. Like you need to be accessible, right? If people can't find you on the internet, it's just as bad as people not being able to find your store in this, in this whatever city you live in or maybe worse. But still the same concept applies. So Pentos is just right in the middle of like all the trading of the narrow sea. They're in the center of Western Essos and which lines up with King's Landing there. Whereas Bravos is, is powerful. They had to scrap their way into that. Bravos is powerful, but, but kind of remote compared to the other free cities. This is way up in the Northwestern corner there, which puts it close to Westeros. But in terms of like getting to like Ashai or even like Volantis, it's pretty far, right? Karth, really far away. For Pentos, it's a lot closer and they're closer to places that are closer. So they're really in the center of... It's like if, if this was a giant mall, they'd be in like the prime spot, whatever that is for a mall. I don't know. (laughs) 
I still want to give credit to the to the value of trade and merchants and and hard work of average people because there are other key spots in good locations too. Yeah, that didn't grow to these thriving cities like King's Landing only relatively recently became a significant city, and it's very very similar as far as positioning. You're right, right? Yeah, so you're totally right. Like it became it's, it's no surprise King's Landing thrived because of its great location. Yet why was there nothing there before? Well probably because of Duskendale and Driftmark and other places that would have stopped them. Like, no, this is our trade network. We don't want you to get going. Yeah. You know, so, which would have maybe happened in ancient Essos as well. There may have been lots of other Pentos-like places that just didn't make it. Either because... Because the leaders were mo- more motivated by maintaining their power mm-hmm. or their prestige or warring against... Rather than productivity and trade and commerce and, and exchange of ideas and everything else. And, and more, so when you get a city people doing that, they thrive more so than cities who are just trying to be the, the big dog or whatever. Yeah. Now, not to say that the presence, the elite don't have a lot of power in Pentos because they do, but it is different. You're right. There are interesting differences in how absolute power or the highest level of power is exercised. It's almost a bit of an in-joke the way they do it. We'll get to that pretty shortly here. Here's a quick one-line quote. Whereas Lorath, Noravas, and Kohor were founded for religious reasons, the interests of Lys, Tyrosh, and Mir have always been mercantile. Interestingly, Pentos, Volantis, and Bravos are not included in that, which is peculiar. It's not too peculiar that Bravos is not in there because they were obviously founded for neither reason. <laughs> they weren't founded for religious or mercantile reasons. They were founded as a haven for escaped slaves, a place, basically a refugee place that turned into a powerful city over time. It had religious and mercantile and refugee political reasons. It had all that. Volantis was more of an extension of the freehold at first because it's just right there, out, just basically right off of the peninsula and still has its ancient ties there. So it's different too. So I wonder why Pentos isn't included because their interests have always been mercantile as well. So I wonder why that's not included here. An implication that there's also been a religious influence. Maybe, yeah. At least, or maybe some other factor. By the way, worth noting, Genoa is the birthplace of multiple popes. Many yeah. popes came from Genoa. Many so another pope. potential parallel there. Right on. Yeah, that's true. Here's another story, an alternate version of the story of Pentos that maybe helps explain where that quote is coming from. Maybe. It is claimed in some histories that Pentos and Lorath were of a third type. Cities already extant before the Valerians came, whose rulers paid homage to Valeria and thus retained their right to native rule. In these cities, what influx of Valyrian blood there was came from migrants from the freehold or political marriages used to better bind these cities to Valyria. Yet, most of the histories that recount this take as their source, Gessio Herodotus's Before the Dragons. Herodotus was himself from Pentos, and at the time, Valantis was threatening to restore the Valyrian Empire under its control. So the notion of an independent Pentos with origins distinct from Valyria was a most politic convenience. Yeah, that's a super interesting anecdote. Like this guy's maybe trying to argue that actually Pentos was originally an independent thing, but then it joined the freehold. Now, I don't know how politic this really is because they didn't need any additional arguments to be free. The doom had happened. Like, there's no Volantis. I mean, there's no freehold to be a part of anymore. So I don't know why they needed arguments for independence when the governing body just vanished into thin air anyway. 
So maybe this shouldn't be looked at as just a story for political convenience. Maybe, maybe it's just a story that was not popular in the freehold because it argues that it wasn't founded by the freehold. So maybe now the truth can come out now that the freehold isn't controlling the narrative. So there's a couple of different ways to look at this that isn't, it goes beyond what's presented, to read between the lines. And I think that's interesting. Nina says, I would like, I would believe to some extent that there was a settlement, if not a full city in the modern location of Pentos, precisely because it is such an attractive geographical area. Absolutely, like we just said. But again, King's Landing, same deal, but didn't have that. You know, King's Landing, there were people in the side of King's Landing, though, to be clear. They just, just a few hovels and fishing boats. It wasn't a city. So maybe that's what you could say. Well, yeah, there were people there. But it was just a few people, maybe like a couple dozen. Would you really call that? Would you really call that a city? Would you like, they founded a city there. Yes, there were people there, but those people didn't found a city. They just built some houses. Like, so some of that's kind of semantics, I guess. Like, at what point does it become a city or a town or a village? Or when is it official? When does it get recognized on the map? You know, like maybe Valeria officially gave it a town charter and said, this is officially a real place with authorized governing body, and that's the way they market this, the founding. There's, these things you can't really pinpoint. You have to... The ability to levy its own taxes. Yeah, have yeah. Its own autonomy when it comes to collecting taxes might be a indication. And there's probably a lot of gray area. You know, I can imagine there were some people who thought of themselves as part of a city already, and some outside entity was trying to tax them, and that outside entity took credit for controlling that city. But maybe Different outside entities were doing that, or internal entities were doing that, and then yeah. maybe at some point it became clear, but probably also still under debate, even if some people thought it was clear. So. A reason it may have been more political is that this, these certain reins of power or key properties or things of value within Pentos may have been claimed by Valyrians, people of Valyrian origin, because of their heritage. Like, well, I, we have first right. We're noble blood from yeah. the freehold. People, some people are like, nah, actually... This city pre-exists, predates all that, so your claims are invalid. It might be that that I could see being a way to push aside claims and, and, of, of Valyrian freeholders who aren't like backed by dragons. Because if they have it, dragons, you're not going to stop them. But right. <laughs> it's hard to say that to those people when they have dragons. Yeah. But when suddenly the dragons are gone, then the people are like, okay, now this is back to being mine. This was supposed to be mine mm-hmm. in the first place, only because I couldn't stop dragons that did not fight for it. Exactly. And they have they have all this money, so they're like, well, they have the Valyrians have a lot of money, so do we. We can we can win this. You know, they they would be a lot more optimistic about staying independent in a post draconic world. And we're like, well, there's no dragons anymore. What are we worried about? Like, yeah, there's not even a continent. There's not even a subcontinent of Valyria anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> they had probably hadn't thought of the Dothraki yet at that point as a, as a problem. But hey, that's a different problem. And Nina says, yeah, this sort of foundational mythmaking is a big part of the real world too. Like the Romans were big on claiming their ancestors were the Trojans and linking that to Romulus and Remus and all that. It gave them, you know, gave their their origin story, a lot more potence and a lot more something, something to unite them all. Like shared heritage is a, is a great way to build community within, or within a city or within a town. You can all be kind of proud of the town's origin or what it produces or the quality of its people or just something. You know, people are proud of Bravos. There's probably plenty of people in Pentos that are proud of their city. I would argue the Bravos, you probably have more to be proud of, but <laughs> that's, that's just my preference. <laughs> What's odd about this, though, is that usually if we use the Trojan War, Romulus Remus stuff, 
this is kind of the opposite of that, where the Romans were like, yeah, we're connected to the Trojans. These guys, this Jesse O'Horatus guy is like, we're not connected to Valeria. <laughs> like he's doing the opposite. He's like trying to distance himself and instead trying to connect to their own local heritage. So they are still trying to connect to this foundational myth stuff, but while also separating themselves from a different myth cycle. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Illyrio has that forked yellow beard with, that's very oily, that's shiny, and he rubs it in a way that Tyrion finds kind of lewd. <laughs> He's blue-eyed and blonde himself and is Pentashi. So that's kind of maybe a fusion of the Andal and Valyrian look, maybe. Like the Andals are blue-eyed, blonde-haired, and the Valyrians, of course, they have the silver hair and purple eyes or, or various colored eyes. They're not all purple. So you kind of, I don't know, that's maybe a clue to Pentashi beauty standards. Like Illyrio definitely has a type. He was almost into Danny himself and thought the better. He, remember what he thinks? He says he's like, oh, I thought she was too timid. Like, okay, you misread her. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sarah, he's into Sarah, who was maybe Sarah Blackfire. Sarah's also blonde and blue-eyed, you know. And yeah, Illyrio has a type and it's his own type because he is also blonde hair and blue eyed. Remember that statue made of him that maybe that's also a clue to Pentashi beauty standards him, him maybe the ideal look for a young Pentashi Bravo. Remember, that's what he was. He was a earned a living with his sword at first. The statue was made by someone named Pytho Malanon, which I don't know if Pytho is Pentashi himself, but every Pentashi name that I've come across start, ends in an O. <laughs> so maybe Pytho, definitely Illyrio, Jezio, Grolio, Nevio, Rigo, and Yalo. Remember, Yalo oh. is Tyrion's Pentashi pseudonym. Are, 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 do we know any Pentashi women and their names end in A? Not a single one. I didn't think we did. Yeah, I didn't think we mm. did. I would guess that we would see a prevalence of A ending names. That's a great call, actually, because, yeah, you see that in, like, romance languages. Yeah. Right? That's, a, that's, a very, that's a really good call. I was going to say these names all sound like Genoans. Yeah, they're all, yeah. It's all very <laughs> yeah, Italian. They really right? do. They are Italian-sounding. They're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot yeah, of double vowels. I mean, double so. consonants and as well. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the consistency of, like, Herodotus and Mopatus, you know, like the... the, the Novatus. Yeah, the names yeah. are... George is pretty good about that, keeping them pretty consistent. There's a phrase, a Pentashi phrase that says, never ask the baker what went into the pie, just eat. It's kind of like, like, don't ask what's in the sausage or don't, you don't want to see how the sausage is made. But it's also kind of like, don't ask questions. Just accept it. Just, you know, don't to keep your nose in your own business or that kind of thing. Like, I'd say, I, I feel like you can read into that motto for like some attitudes the city might have. Because a lot of dirty things happen in the city and you might, you know, like, People doing things they're not supposed to. So you might be like a, it might be like a don't, don't be a snitch type vibe that gets spread, trickled down from the, the elite and spread to the commoners. You're like, that's our vibe here. We don't talk. <laughs> you don't, what happens in Pentos stays in Pentos. <laughs> Maybe a, a slightly less cynical take is don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Okay, like, sure, sure. Hey, that's this stuff's good, right? We're living a good life, like you that. know? So here, just accept it for it. I do think uh, clearly there's a theme of slavery, you know, so that's another ball, by the way, Genoa, key in slave trade in the mm-hmm. colonial times. So. Let's talk a little bit about the way the city is laid out. It commands a large area, as we described just before in the region section, the cities of, of the greatest interest, though. Of course, we don't have a great idea of what it looks like and even less of what it looked like long ago. We see most of what we see is Illyrio's manse and very little outside that. But there is some, enough to make use of and, and make some educated guesses. And we see examples, as we do throughout the world, of it maybe not being so much having the vibe that it was founded under, of 
being a place of plucky merchants and traders. Now it, it seems to have maybe become a place of the haves and have-nots, where the state of unfettered capitalism has gone on so long that it's the, the people with money or have taken over to the extent that they're changing the way things work and affecting the laws and in ways that are eliminating the middle class. It's something that happens in the real world, certainly. For example, when they head out to Danny One to meet Khal Drogo, the streets are not lit at all, which is kind of telling. Here's a quote. The streets of Pentos were pitch dark when they set out in Illyrio's elaborately carved palanquin. Two servants went ahead to light their way, carrying ornate oil lanterns with panes of pale blue glass, while a dozen strong men hoisted the poles to their shoulders. Hmm. You would expect to see a city put up lights on the streets. Like, that's normal. You see that in King's Landing. You see that pretty much everywhere. Or at least you see, like, residual lights from inhabitants. It's kind of odd that it's pitch black, but not where we see Danny and company go. That's, it's an easy thing to take for granted in the modern world. Lighting. It's just everywhere. We have so many lighting devices. And, and it's cheaper. We don't have to... I mean, there are still places in the world that, that don't have access to electricity, but electricity is pretty cheap compared to burning wood and coal and having to constantly re, resupply yourself with that. Cheaper and safer and more infrastructure. Like yeah. there's less likely to start fires, to be polluting the air and so on else. This is why I'm talking about like the elimination of the middle class, perhaps in Pentos. Like these are the people that would complain about the lack of this. Like, hey, our tax money goes towards this. The rich don't care because they can easily, this is like a penny to them. Like relatively speaking, they can afford to light their own homes and all this other stuff. They carry a troop of light makers with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, that's just another of Valyria's many servants. Like, what does he care? Mm-hmm. You know, like this another item on the ledger. For him, it's barely anything. The guy owns mines, farms, orchards, businesses. Like, it's nothing to him. But how do you get, it's hard to get that rich or if not impossible to get that rich without stepping on a lot of people's throats or hands or both and or doing worse than that own that many businesses you know, to have that much wealth. Yeah. I didn't think of this either, but I seem to remember there was a passage where they're kind of describing the nature of the the slaves in Pentos to where like they're you're ostensibly free as long as you don't owe money. That's slavery they have, yes. Right. And one way that is is you you don't pay them enough to to earn yes. to, to to get above the food they're being provided. And so a job like lighting candles at night. That's enough. That's that's not enough work to justify enough pay to pay for your food. And so Ilario gets to just keep them all as slaves. Yep. And he does feed them. He gives them basic sustenance for life, but they'll never earn enough paying that back just lighting candles at night. And so he gets slaves within the law, you know. So I want to jump ahead a little bit because what you said was really insightful there. And it sort of touches on something that Nina and myself both made note of in the document here that Illyrio has this odd line that he says to Tyrion, which is like, my household loves me well. They'd never betray me. And it's like, what a strange thing to say for a guy who's lived a life of intrigue. Like, how could he possibly trust his household that much? So maybe it's something he says to just change the subject or to move on. Like, he doesn't really believe that, but he's just kind of gaslighting Tyrion for some reason. Or maybe it's this. Like, the lamp guy is not going to betray Illyrio because he's got nowhere else to go. He's got no one else willing to take him. Like, if he quits Illyrio, he's going to be a beggar, a homeless beggar on the street. Like, the other, the other light post jobs are all taken <laughs> by other people and other, <laughs> other magistrates, other pe- rich people in Penta. He's like, it's like, hey, do you need a new light guy? Like, no, of course I don't need a new light guy. I never have an opening. 
<laughs> you know, I, when I have an opening, I fill it like that. Like, we never have like a job. We're waiting for, not for someone who is basically unskilled anyway. Yeah, so that's just the way it works. Like, the jo- even, places, even the job market in a place like this is going to be just non-existent. You either do it yourself or you, fo- you get lucky. You get hired into something or you get... And it's not even necessarily luck because the job stinks and you're basically a slave. You know, maybe it's... Even if it's still manipulative or underhanded or greedy or whatever, Alario still might actually... There might be some truth to what he's saying because he might be wealthy enough that he does pay all his servants enough to not want to revolt or yeah, betray. Right. Like, not enough to be free, yeah. but better than anyone else. Yeah, just, he might pay his... You know, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, so it's not he like may be, he may be wise enough to to use his money in a way to keep things secure around. Yeah, him, like he's not know? doing it for good guy reasons, but you're right. It's it's just a it's a form of ruthlessness. It's like calculated ruthlessness. Like, well, I will just pay them slightly more than everybody else, and that'll ensure their loyalty. You know, yeah. Like they get three, and they get three from someone else. I give them four. Like why would they why would they quit for three when they can keep getting four from me? <laughs> you know. And Robert and Ned, when they're discussing like assassinating Danny, of course, Ned hates the subject, but Robert is, is Robert. And he says, and this is one of the lines that we refer to when we point out how Viserys was talking about Illyria, the hired knives coming after him. Like, no, there were no hired knives. Because Robert's like, I should have gone after him when I had the chance. You know, I should have had him killed when I had the chance. And he is like, well, that means you didn't try, did you? It's like, now he's in some walled mansion surrounded by pointy-headed eunuchs. And, I, and he's like, and Ned's like, you can't get to him now, can you? He's like, no, I can't. Which is really telling. Like, the king on the Iron Throne can't get inside this one mansion in Pentos. Like, he, he can't bribe the right people. He can't... Yeah. None of these things, well, partly because Robert's master whispers is Varys. He's not gonna... <laughs> that plan would never... He doesn't want to. Yeah, yeah. that plan would never work. But Var- obviously, that's only part of the problem. <laughs> Like, it's the problem, despite Robert doesn't even know that Varus is connected to Illyrio, and he still has this issue without that problem. So, yeah. It says a lot about the strength of Illyrio's, like, mansion. And it's like this walled, fortified mansion inside the... You don't do that if the city is, like, relatively safe and peaceful, and, like, that's the kind of thing you do when it's, your city is descended into post-capitalism, where there's ever, the haves and the have-nots, and you, you use security against the have-nots rather than pumping that money into the economy to make it like work for everyone, you know? It's also something you do when you have excess money. Yes, you, you know, too, like yeah. lower lords who yes. might be wealthy and successful, but not as much as Alario might not necessarily be investing in that sort of security. The city isn't necessarily that bad off, but it is not that well off either. Yeah. Right? We're told Pentos produces a lot of performers and swords, the type of profession that it's an independent profession. Not, you don't get hired to do it. Well, you do if you're a sellsword. I mean, but you first have to get good at fighting in order to be hired in the sellsword. The same as a performer. You get hired to perform, but you have to learn that on your own. And you rarely, like you can, sure, you can maybe go to a school for that. But it doesn't sound like there's performance schools in Pentos. It sounds like you sit there practicing juggling until you know how to do it. Like you find three objects, like stones maybe. Like basically you, your skills and your body are your source of your income, not something people, other people taught you, not, not education that you got at a university or a school or from middle class or wealthy parents. So Pentos produces a lot of people like this. For example, Penny and Oppo and their father, Hopbean, may, are, are, may not be from Pentos. We don't know where they're from, but they were hired in Pentos. It's a place where performers 
well, it's a place for performers. A lot of a lot of them are produced there, so maybe they are from there, but we don't we don't actually know. If her name was Penna instead of Penny, <laughs> we might be more sure. That's a good point. <laughs> Oppo, though, that that fits. Two, it's got the oh, double consonants yeah. and the O ending, right? And the O, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And too bad we don't know what the tattered prince's real name is, but we could guess it ends in O. <laughs> Tato. But it has a G. It's Tato. 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 <laughs> Tatio. <laughs> <laughs> The manse gifted to Cal Drogo, speaking of excess wealth, as you mentioned a minute ago, Sean, it has nine towers and sits by the bay. They just gave it to him. They're like, here you go. We've got an extra nine-towered mansion for you. Just, we just had an extra, you know. <laughs> My collection of mansions. What's one less, right? So extremely fancy and nice. But here's the thing. It's the quirk of this. Who owns it now? Like, Dothraki don't just pass their things down to their sons, right? You don't, you don't become called because your son was. Like, it happens occasionally. But that's because you earn it, like, or you brought along and, and proved yourself. You, you don't just get it handed to you, right? So, yeah, who owns this thing now? They just probably just took it back. They're like, well, we'll hold on to it until another call, <laughs> until some other big call comes along, and we'll give it to that guy. But Danny might show up and being like, so this is mine, right? Because it was my husband's. Where's my manse? You know, <laughs> that might be like <laughs> a way for her to, you like, know, you know, negotiate. Another wrinkle to that is it probably wasn't just sitting empty. While Drogo was running around on his horse, right? I mean, he would. They probably were all, renting yeah. it out to people. They were probably holding events right, and storing stuff. And like, they, like, yeah, sure, it's yours. We'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> and they just went back to their regular business. You know, maybe they cleared some certain areas out or yeah. took the most valuable stuff. But, yeah, he uh, hardly used it. Like he, we see when he he's there, and then Danny and Viserys show up. He meets them and he leaves. He goes to his calisar out in the sea, and then he's like, "Y'all can stay here. Danny and Viserys could stay at the Nine Towered Mansion." Oh, yeah, Drogo yeah. only stays there like a day or two. He's like, ah, I'd rather be with my men. You know, <laughs> I'm a call. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. He would never notice or care that the top three floors of each tower were storing grain. You know, that they, they <laughs> I, I guarantee you that whoever gave it to him was still profiting off of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, something Shay I mentioned earlier comes up here. I had this in the notes. When Danny shows up for her to meet Drogo, there's other calls. There's other highborn people. There's red priests. There's sellswords and bravos. So there's lowborn and highborn. There's elites. There's everything. But there's no women. Zero. Danny's like, I'm the only woman here. What the hell? That's weird, right? Like, I don't quite understand that. But I think maybe Pentos might be even more gendered as a society. It might be worse than average, which is pretty bad in this setting for excluding women from power. Like, they might, like, they're not even there. Like, like, like there would be some women there. Like, this is a fancy, like, is wedding. That, like, that's weird, right? Is it a Pintos thing or a, uh, might be. a Dothraki thing? It could be a Dothraki thing. Yeah, maybe that was or for a the mix. Dothraki. Yeah, that's a good point, because the Dothraki women definitely are, are treated yeah. very low. Yeah, maybe they just, like, I, I could see that, like, maybe the Pentoshi were like, let's yes. not have any women here, because those Dothraki are gonna, like, just take our women. If we, I mean, they're specifically uh, rapers and pillagers. Yeah, like, like, what is anyone in Pintos going to do if some Dothraki warrior comes up and just takes, kidnaps some girl? Yeah, takes your daughter, takes your, your wife, whatever. What are like, you going to do? Like You're going to fight yeah. them? Just don't bring your wives or your daughters to this event, yeah. right? You're right. I think this is a great guess. Yeah, yeah, I think you guys may have nailed it. I did not, that did not occur to me, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally just, right. Just, like, yeah, we saw what happened the, at the wedding. Like, yeah, yeah they, they just, just don't grab trust each them. other and yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It may even on some level make Danny seem more special too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Oh, it might her. also make her seem more scared or be more scared. Which she was. <laughs> but they're not it definitely had that. that effect. She was. It did. Yeah. That was her reaction. Like, with a 
with a start of fright. She noticed that she was the only woman there or something like that. And it's, I was it's like, well, how hard to be the most beautiful woman at the event when you're the only woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Depending on the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, yeah. The that's most the fly to the Concord song. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen eating a horse kebab. <laughs> or a horse heart kebab. Yeah. <laughs> fly to the Concord's reference. The Concord's. I couldn't get it for a second the there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about government and religion in Pentos. Here's a quote from Illyria. In Pentos, we have a prince, my friend. He presides at ball and feasts and rides about the city in a palaquin of ivory and gold. Three heralds go before him with golden scales of trade, iron sword of war, and the silver and the silver scourge of justice. On the first day of each new year, he must deflower the maid of the fields and the maid of the seas. Valerio leaned forward, elbows on the table. Yet, should a crop fail or war be lost, we cut his throat to appease the gods and choose a new prince from amongst the 40 families. Now this, in the world of ice and fire, describes this very similarly. It basically backs Illyrio up and it suggests that this is perhaps arising from the mysterious origins of pre-Valyrian Pentos. So yeah, maybe the beliefs of the original Pentashi are reflected here. Because yeah, this isn't Valyrian, although they're not opposed to sacrifice, certainly. They have different reasons for it. And they certainly, the Valyrians, I don't think the Valyrians would have ever been cool with sacrificing members of the elite. That's kind of against the way they run things. So it's pretty interesting. This anecdote comes at a time when Tyrion is lamenting how he can't go back to Westeros because he's a regicide, kinslayer, and traitor. And Illyra basically waves that off like, that's nothing. A king can just say, you're absolved. And it's all, and it's just as simple as that. It really is just that simple. A king can absolve you of all that, literally all of it, and everyone has to treat you like you have broken no laws. Now, that doesn't mean they will, but as far as the official authority goes, you're all well and good. Illyrio's right. If Danny or young Griff were to just declare Tyrion okay, then he is a okay, unless another, you know, unless that king is then overthrown and a, an anti Tyrion person is put in their place and, and reverses all that. But basically, Illyrio is right to point to just the, the way their system works that even Tyrion isn't really taking proper account of. And then he sort of looks down on, he's like, well, look, and you look, look down on the will of kings and princes because he's Pentashi in a society that has made a system out of sacrificing the nobility for their failures. And it's results-based, not process-based. They're not like, your plan was bad, so we're going to kill you. No, it's like bad things happen. They could be entirely not your fault. It can be obviously not your fault, but the will of the gods is what it is. I don't even know what gods we're talking about. <laughs> like, who, which gods? Like, <laughs> they're not even named here. Yeah. <laughs> but this, this practice is still in play. And in some ways, it's really good because it keeps the excess of the nobility from, the, like, tyranny. It prevents things like tyranny of, of one individual. It keeps, like, longstanding power. You know, it, it's power changes every year no matter what. That's good. You know, like, but sort of just shifts things towards the, the, that power. It doesn't remove that power. It, does, it just shifts that power towards the magisters and the 40 families. It's still there. It's still being wielded over the commons. It still is the reason there's no middle class now, or, or so it seems. But it's harder for the power to be mobilized. Yes. That's, you know, yes. it's harder for... Yeah. It, keeps but the there's also, it keeps the struggles internal rather than conquering yeah. out. Yeah. There's a lot of pros and cons because it also, it, things are less transparent. It's hard to know the motivations and actions of all these 40 people behind the scenes of this one leader. But at least this one leader can't just declare a war yeah. or raise taxes 20% or something like that. 
there's another, I remember talking about this in the past. I wish I could remember what, which episode it was or what the context was, but I just remember thinking about the idea that it's, it's maybe, I don't know how to say this exactly, but like more fair, more better motivation for the leader. I think it even says in a world of ice and fire that there is a, uh, it's sort of, the the prince is sort of just a figurehead, right? He doesn't really have that much power. He's mostly just a figurehead, probably kind of like the modern uh, queen of England or king of England or whatever, you know. But there still is some ability, some leadership that that prince can wield, right? Like if he does take the initiative to set up grain storage and then there's a drought, Hey, good thing I set up this grain storage. Mm-hmm. We're not all starving, so you don't have to kill me. You know, they can plan ahead. They can take some action and wield some leadership, even if it's only to keep themselves from being killed. It still will result with better policies and stabilization. And, and I can imagine a, a shrewd, proactive prince might do a lot, make a good positive difference, especially if he interacts with the different lords that chose him. But my guess is also they don't usually do that. Yeah. They, they aren't really aware. They live these pampered lives in ivory towers and are, you know, probably a mix of like the tattered prince like ran away. He's like, screw that. I'm, I'm not, not going to risk yeah. getting myself killed. <laughs> yeah, he's, <laughs> so, he's smart. I think it'd be a neat story to learn about some of the details of those people, how they're chosen, how they deal with it and such. Yeah. But it, it is a lot of interesting dynamics from like a power and political standpoint. Yeah, it's really like they have a, basically a built-in scapegoat for everything. So the nobility can yeah. constantly get away with whatever because they just this guy always gets the blame for it. Someone that they put in front of everybody to say, okay, this is our next sacrificial lamb or whatever crap we pull or whatever happens randomly. We're not going to take the fall for it no matter what. It's always going to be this person. <laughs> and it's never, again, it's never a princess of the field. There is the maiden of the fields and the maiden of the seas, which are part of that. It's, it says they have to, the prince has to sleep with both of them as part of it, which is odd, but you know, you can kind of see how that fits into ancient fertility beliefs and things of that nature. Yeah, Nina says it's a bit it's a bit of having their cake and eating it too. There are advantages to having a single executive, which is why so many government systems do in times of crisis or danger. It can be advantageous to have a single person who can make decisions on behalf of the state in the best interest of the, in the best interest of it. Obviously, if assuming the leader actually has the best interest of the state in mind. The magisters of Pentos get the benefit of having a single executive in the moments where a single executive is advantageous. Like if there is a war, that guy is in charge. Even though there's powers behind the throne that can influence him, he's still going to have executive authority, but it's only going to last for a year. Which is odd, like if a lot of wars go for more than one year, so you can be kind of weird to change leadership midstream there. So that can be kind of problematic, but anyway. But ultimately, it's just so very retrograde. Just Putting everything on results rather than process, it just, it just makes me squirm. <laughs> it's like, no matter what, you're just yeah. going to blame someone for something that's out of their control. I hate the lack of accountability in the system. It's, it's, it bothers me. <laughs> it is, you know, when you said though, it's, you know, as long as they have, as long as their motivations are also what's in best interest of the state, but they are more likely to be motivated what's in the best interest of their state if their life depends on it, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's true. Nina writes of the government of King's Landing and how it's like a parody of that, where, yeah, the, the ritual intercourse between the prince and the maid of the sea and the maid of the fields feels like a caricature of the Westerosi obsession with sealing claims on power through dynastic marriages, which always puts the burden on the woman because they have to go join a new family and have kids with someone they didn't choose. And they're the glue that holds these alliances together without having very much say into it, which... In Pentos, it seems like that's even more extreme. Like the women are even more 
marginalized and used as possessions. And it also says a lot about Illyrio, like what his values are and what he expects from this arrangement, what he expects to get out of his investment. He expects to benefit from putting Aegon on the throne or Danny, or both of them or whatever. And two, he expects the puppets to dance. He bribes them and wants results for those bribes. Like he bribed that one Valentine triarch and like ate enough to buy him eight times over, it says, but he's, he just still won't behave the way he expects. Now, that's a person that would be hard for Illyrio to kill because he's the triarch in Volantis. And well, that's mm-hmm. far away. And, you know, it's no easy thing position to assassinate power, a position public, power, and... yeah. But Danny or Aegon, I don't know. Maybe that's a different thing, especially if they're, they have proximity to him. So, yes, very interesting. These motivations of Illyrio to these plays, he's making this money, he's paying these alliances. Did he expect some sort of return? He expects to have some power behind the throne or whatever. Yes. That's a weird, crazy thing about Ilario. Yeah, no, that's... Littlefinger, Tywin. You know, every other character has the same sort of... Most of the characters in Powers of Position have very similar sorts of motivations. Yeah. Nina also writes that in addition to the aspect of marriages being sealed by women and women who are expected to be virgins for these arrangements. That comes up pretty big. And there's a few examples of this, like Tywin being perplexed that Tyrion won't sleep with Sansa. Like, because once you do, like, she's basically yours, you know, in quotes. Like, you kind of own her at that point. Like, why don't you want to own her? You know, <laughs> like, well, I could think of several reasons. Well, <laughs> but... <laughs> Tywin is still perplexed at Tyrion's answers. Like, well, that's silly. You know, <laughs> you want her to love you? Like, are you stupid? She's not going to. Like, <laughs> which, in that much, Tywin, Thanks, in that uh, part, Tywin's right, but doesn't have to be so rude about it, but still, you know. So, yeah, there's, there's other examples. Like, once you have consummated the marriage, it's official. Like, that is a thing that even in our society is somewhat established as like, like, that is a, still legally, like, to this day. It's a much easier to get an annulment in a marriage if it hasn't been consummated, right? Like the, the sex is still codified into marriage today in our world. And well, in a lot of Western, I'm not, obviously I can't speak to all world laws, but I know that's true in America. I mean, that's wild to think that, but of course we have, there's a lot of religious influence on our lawmaking. So yeah, there you go. It's, it's a parallel to the real world. So there's these 40 families we hear, the, the, biggest power in Pentos is these 40 families, which is pretty interesting because there were 40 Dragonlord families. I wonder if they copied that number. Sean, you suggest maybe it's the other way around. That's possible. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Nina says that seems extremely doubtful. Why would the, the Dragonlords copy Pentos? Because they're, they're so hoity-toity and you know the elite won't copy someone else. I don't know if it's that simple, but yeah. I also just think Valeria probably had established that earlier, but, but maybe not. My headcanon would probably be that Pentos copied Valyria. But you're right, Sean. Or maybe some other central thing that they both were copying. Okay, also sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like an older, something older. Um, maybe something from Ashai or Sarnor. Who knows? But Nina also points out that there was the 40 families, 41, eventually after some famous, infamous deadlock, electors who historically chose the Doges of Venice, which, not quite Genoa, but very similar, regionally connected. Mm. So you have the 40 families of Venice choosing the Doge, which is basically the prince. So that, yeah, that feels very much an homage. The Pentashi gods, we don't know that much about them. We know that, you know, there's this, this belief 
that may predate Valyrian influence about the prince of prince and the maiden of the fields and maiden of the seas. But apparently there's more that just hasn't been revealed. Here's a quote from Fire and Blood. Many a queer god is worshipped in Pentos, but Draz was known to keep but one, a small household idol like unto a woman great with child, with swollen breasts and a bat's head. She is all the god I need, was all he would say upon the matter. Yeah, what does that mean? She was all the god I need. Like, that's your one god, a bat-headed pregnant lady? <laughs> that's weird, man. It's very Lovecraftian. It's like George R. R. Martin's obs- default for obscure gods is Lovecraft. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to make it some animal head, which actually isn't that different from non Like, Egyptian gods all have animal heads. So maybe I'm, yeah. maybe I'm reading too much Lovecraft into it because there is a lot of Lovecraft in his other gods. But still, swollen breasts and pregnancy is very common for fertility idols, though. Very common for gods and, and idols and, and things, objects of worship. So that part, George, is, is attaching to a very common religious tradition from the real world. So that's, that's cool. Now, of course, the sacrifice part is also a big part of real world traditions here and there. And like Nina says, the doges of Venice would do a marriage of the sea every year. The doge and his court would sail out to a barrier island in the lagoon of Venice. The patriarch of Venice would preach a benediction and then the doge would throw a ring into the sea while announcing that Venice was thereafter wedded to the sea. And every year they would renew this. So this is very similar, just a lot less bloody, and they're just getting rid of a ring instead of, a, you know, a person. <laughs> Nina writes, Casanova joked that if the famous Bucentaur, the ceremonial barge of the doges, capsized during the event, the doge would finally be able to consummate the marriage. <laughs> <laughs> we love the name Casanova. One of our cats is yeah. named Casanova. That's right. And Nina says, also, there is a parallel with the Aztec feast of Toxcalatl. Ahead of the feast, a young male warrior, typically a prisoner of war, would be chosen to impersonate the god Tezcatlipoca and would live in luxury and be revered as a god for one year. At the end of the year, after marrying four women, so he gets a nice send-off, I guess. The impersonator of the god would be sacrificed. You get a year of extreme luxury culminating with marrying four women and then being killed. Like, damn. And then they would do that all over again. So yeah, that's very similar as well. You can really see a lot of... It's amazing how many of these elements of Pentos are in the real world. Like, yeah, the real world used to do this too, y'all. Can I be chosen for that when I'm 75? Yeah. <laughs> Tyrion would, would be that. Like, when I'm in 80, you know, I'm going to die with a, a full belly of wine, a hand on each... Bra- yeah, yeah, that's pretty close, right? <laughs> oh, wait. Bonus points disease for pronouncing Tezcatlipoca correctly. Did I? I think it was. I, I, yeah. I was like, I hope I, I'm just, I just kind of threw it out. <laughs> cool. All right. So thank, bonus points for pronouncing it smoothly, however yeah. correct it I might have been. I made it yeah. sound right. I, just say it confidently. <laughs> <laughs> Most of y'all aren't going to know if I got it right or not. Like, yeah, I, I'm probably right. So here's a quote that combines a lot of what we've learned here. A lot of the elements from what we've discussed, both regional, religious, ancient history, sacrifice, other ethnicities, all in one. Quote. An old legend told in Pentos claims that the Andals slew the swan maidens who lured travelers to their deaths in the velvet hills that lie to the east of the free city. A hero, whom the Pentoshi singers call Hoko, led the Andals at that time, and it is said that he slew the seven maids, not for their crimes, but instead as sacrifice to his gods. There are some maesters who have noted that Hukko may well be a rendering of the name of Hugor. So Hukko certainly, or Hukko maybe, certainly sounds 
like it fits with the, the naming conventions from before. The double consonant and the O finisher. Yeah, very much on point there. That's cool. You got some end all hero that the Pentashi had their own name for, maybe sort of loosely in the tradition of Azora High, where you have different names, maybe for the same heroic figure. This is, of course, not some sort of big legendary hero that's remembered for all time. This is a much smaller scale person. But still, if they led people to slay the swan maidens who were capturing people and pulling them under sea, that's a pretty important thing <laughs> to stop the, ra- the ravaging of the, the evil of the swan maidens. It sound kind of like sirens, really. You know. <laughs> that's what I was equating in my mind. Yeah. Either way. I, I still, it still seems like a... I fought a lion with my bare hands. I slayed the dragon with my sword. I killed some women. <laughs> some swan women. <laughs> well, they sang. They sang, though. They were beautiful. Okay, what point am I supposed to be happy you did yeah, this? Yeah, well, where's the heroism here? Like, what, what was, where was the hard part? Like, what, what, what did you have to overcome? Like, decency, you know? Like, your morals? You had to, over, I had to come overcome my morals to slay these innocent women. Well, maybe they're not innocent, but yeah. Anyway, maybe it doesn't they're not sound, innocent. Doesn't, okay. doesn't sound good, does it? Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, there's also non-Pentashi gods worshipped in Pentos. As we saw in Danny's wedding, there were red priests everywhere, including one that was bigger than Illyrio which is meant to show, I think, the corruption, the, the degradation of asceticism and things like that. If you're a priest and you're eating and drinking that much, how close to your God are you really? Unless your God is a God of... Unless it's like, you know, you're in the cult of Dionysus, Dionysus. or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then go right, go right ahead then, <laughs> you know? But Relora isn't really about that. Like, Bonero is like gaunt and... and yeah, Melisandre doesn't even eat or drink barely. She only does it just to keep up appearances, right? All right, that's our first half. We don't know what other gods are worshipped in Pentos, but we can assume it's kind of similar to a lot of places that have a trading port. Like, they're open to lots of different gods because you want the different sailors to have their needs met and not to have too many trouble. Not to have too much trouble. You want it to be a, a safe haven, a safe space <laughs> for whatever god you want to worship. Whether it's the black goat of Kohor or the Weeping Lady of Lys, or whatever. Yeah, so as we said at the beginning, you still have time to sign up to be part of our recurring hangouts, to join and play Quiplash or Trivia or whatever we're going to be hosting that particular month. You can do that for $2 a month if you sign up for Patreon now. That price goes away in August, so you still have time, but that time is dwindling. We've got Quiplash, Trivia, some of the other Jackbox games, and next time we're going to do Strip Poker. <laughs> Are we? Okay, this is news to me. You don't want right. to discourage people, Sean. <laughs> depends. I'm supposed to encourage them. Depends on who's stripping. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so sign up now and lock your $2 price in for the length as long as you want, because that price will be gone, but you can grandfather yourself in and have a, a cheaper way to support us for the long term. Brandolin Price says, The prince deflowering two maidens a year for sea and land prosperity reminds me of the king's stag ritual in the midst of Avalon. Fantashi definitely give me Celtic Gaelic vibes. Not just, not just that, but other parts of it at least as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm not super familiar with the myths of Avalon. That's You read that? No. Oh, I thought you did. My mother read it. Yeah. Marion Zimmer Bradley, I believe. Unfortunately, Marion Zimmer Bradley is a horrible person, but that didn't come out until yeah, I read the books long very before. later. Yeah, yeah, like really, really bad person. Like George thought she, George had cited her a number of times also because probably he didn't know what a horrible person she was because that yeah. only came out like 10 years ago. 
Yeah. Like after her death, basically. So she she never had to answer for her crimes in life. But my God, the stories her children tell are just unbelievably bad. Yeah. Sorry about that, y'all. If you're a fan of Marion Zimmer Bradley, it's <laughs> a rough way to find that out. But yeah, The Mists of Avalon is a, was a really big story. It's really popular. It did really well. It was, it's still widely read, I believe. I don't think that many people still don't know about the Marion Zimmer Bradley as a person, which would be a turnoff for a lot of folks. But most people just, yeah, you're not aware of it. How can you take that into account? I can't comment specifically on the parallels because like I said, I haven't read it. But yeah, my mom used to tell me a lot about it. She loved it. Yeah, they were good. <laughs> right on. Lolotov. <laughs> nice name. Love that name. That's great. Yeah. Lolotov. I like not having firm ideas of population. It's not like anyone is going out and counting. Yeah, why would they have a census? And why would they? Yeah. Sir Eustace doesn't even know how many draftable peasants he has in three villages that live nearby him. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point. Like a, a, a more well-to-do lord might bother counting, but Sir Eustace, you can, Eustace's lands have the feel of disrepair like he just doesn't care anymore he's so sad and bitter and yeah. it might not have as much to do with being well to do or not with being competent or motivated yeah, or <laughs> right. it's, it's probably a lot of the above not just one yeah. <laughs> by the way i just want to point out so your shirt your shirt by the way is east is the valerian steel crown well this, right? is, this is not this is not the valerian it, it should be but as we saw on tv this is the tv version of the crown which Looks like it's regular iron and not Valyrian steel. It's, it's supposed to be Valyrian steel, but this is the TV version. And I don't, it doesn't look like Valyrian steel to me. It might be, but they called it iron in the show. So. It's hard to capture it on a t shirt. Yes. So like, <laughs> that's true. Or in a Star Trek shirt, like a classic Star Trek shirt with the Huru and Spock. But I, I just wanted to point out that I have a t shirt on underneath this, which is a guy throwing a Molotov cocktail. So oh, just to... <laughs> not a Molotov cocktail, an actual Molotov. Yes. <laughs> If I'd ever thought of that, I, I think I prefer Lolotov cocktails. Mm-hmm. Why I are you wearing that? two shirts? <laughs> I'm wearing a shirt. Are you wearing? Are you wearing two shirts? Do. Are you really wearing wear two shirts? Yeah, he pulled his other shirt up. I usually sure. wear a yeah. t-shirt underneath. Gotta, yeah, you gotta okay. bulk up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's that icy Denver summer. Yeah, <laughs> I'm wearing. It's pretty warm right now. I can't actually, see it, but I'm wearing a Krusty the Clown shirt. Oh yeah. If you wear it for several days, it'll be a crusty Krusty the Clown shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a crown. You've got a clown. Uh, hey, that's true. <laughs> so don't frown. <laughs> right, let's talk recent history of Pentos. Since most of our sources are Westerosi, what, much of what we know about Pentos comes from dealings with Westeros or when the conflicts are big enough for Westeros to take note. And of course, that is fueled by the proximity as well. We don't hear actually that much about the doom from Pentos's perspective, probably because, you know, even though it had to have been a big deal, the fact that there was a lesser concentration of highborn Valyrians by less visits by dragon lords and less estates and mansions owned by dragon lords, it probably just had a, a smaller effect overall. I mean, not that it wouldn't have been big, but compare it to Kohor, where they raised, where a dragon lord raised the population to make an army, or Volantis, where they just got all up in arms about conquering the other free cities. Pentos was more like, how do we protect our trade network? You know, that's the people that ruled there did their thing. And you wonder how the transition of the whole Prince of Pentos system and sacrifice, how that existed under the Freehold versus not. Like, did, did this system come back after the Freehold? Did they not have that when the Freehold was around? I don't think so. I think they did because they were allowed to run the city the way they wanted. I mean, that's why they're called the Free Cities. The Valeria, Valeria just expected things from them, but it didn't interrupt their day-to-day way of handling their business or their local politics. So I think they probably still had that Prince of 
Pentos thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't have survived to the modern times, probably. I doubt they re revived a thousands of year old tradition that no one had done in like 5,000 years, although the Ironborn did that with the King's Mood. <laughs> Still, it was unlikely. But it was kind of, it was, no, it was made that they were redoing yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And, they were like, oh, what a good idea. And that's, and, and that's, and, that's a one-time thing, maybe not rather, maybe not a recurring thing. I don't know. Maybe it'll be a recurring thing, but anyway. Too early to tell. Yeah. But, but, but we did also get the perspective that it has come to be more of a position of What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, ceremonial. So more, yes. it's come to be more ceremonial. Yes. So that seems like something that would have had to have happened. And I wonder if under the freehold, it might have actually been more authoritative or, 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 or meaningful. Or know? maybe that's why it became so ceremonial because they couldn't, they, oh, they, yeah. they had to exercise less power under the freehold's guiding or yeah. domain. Yeah. But maybe not if they just, yeah. But either way, I, I could see it becoming, yeah, because of that, more ceremonial because it had less legal authority under the freehold. Maybe uh, now, and, and after so long, it, it didn't revert to being a thing of power after thousands of years of just being ceremonial. I kind of hope and expect to find out more. I mean, it just takes one more conversation between Ilario and Fares or Tywin or, or not Tywin, Tyrion or whoever, mm-hmm. you know, to just two or three paragraphs can just, <laughs> just explode yeah. the I, amount of knowledge that we have. I agree. I think we're going to learn more. I mean, as we've said, and it's not casual. There's a lot of reason to think there's plenty more that's going to happen in Pentos, and that's got to involve some more description of the city, if not its history. So when Volantis tried to begin their imperial pretensions, Pentos was one of those who formed the alliance to stop them. In fact, Pentos and Tyrosh, at first they had the help of Argolok the Arrogant, and eventually Pentos and Tyrosh actually sent people to go talk to Aegon, the Conqueror, before he was the Conqueror. And he joined them and, you know, burned that fleet at Lys and, and fought the Valentines. So Pentos and Aegon had a little bit of relationship there. The Dothraki emerging during the Doom in the Century of Blood would be the start of their policy of huge bribes, right? That wouldn't have, they wouldn't have needed to do that before. They would have had, I mean, the Dothraki wouldn't be ranging all the way across the entire freehold to get to Pentos. That would be an extremely remote location for them to even begin to approach and the Dragon Lords would have stopped them. So yeah, there's no... This would be a completely uh, one of the biggest features of the new world, of the post-Doom world for them to deal with. The, the existence of the Dothraki, the emergence of the Dothraki. That's probably when that Sphinx was taken, right? And it would be a symbol of the new world. They're like, well, we're no longer bowing down to the Sphinxes. We're bowing down to the people that can take the Sphinxes back to their home really, really far away. How far? They wheeled that thing on logs like, damn, that's far. <laughs> Yeah, but it's not nearly the first time they've done something like that. So we very frequently see Pentashi guests at major Westerosi made events like weddings, coronations, tourneys, too many to list, really. When Magor went into exile after refusing to give up his second wife, he took Blackfire, his second wife, and Balerion with him to live there. His second wife stayed when he returned, but as soon as he won his trial of seven, she came over. So she was treated well over there in the meantime. I don't suppose they would want to piss Magor off. That sounds like a really dumb thing to do. Grand Maester Benefer fled to Pentos when Magor took over. So he like, Magor comes over, Benefer goes to Pentos, like they switched mm-hmm. places. And then when Magor died, Lords Buckwell and Rollingford fled to Pentos and men of Benefer returned. <laughs> so you have all these people that were going to Pentos to escape Magor and then going back to King's Landing when Magor died. So a lot of... <laughs> just goes to show that it's just so close that it's a it's, it's convenient place to flee to. It's the easiest place to find a ship to. If you got to get out in a hurry, 
you're probably going to get out to Pentos. You know, like Aria got shipped to Bravos. That was kind of random. It was more likely that the first ship she stumbled on would have been a Pentashi. Of course, they wouldn't have taken her because she didn't have money. They only took the volunteer, the Bravos ship only took her because she had the right coin. But still, George didn't need to write like five different ships for her to get on before she found the right one. <laughs> that would have been a bit of a waste. But yeah, 22 magisters attended the Golden Wedding in 49 AC. And that's an interesting number because we don't know how many magisters there are, but well, it's at least 22. And it's probably more than that because I doubt all of the magisters attended. There's probably a few who were like too old to travel or just didn't want to or didn't think it was a good idea to put all your eggs in one Golden Wedding basket. I don't know. The next year, the year 50 AC, Rigo Draz was made master of coin. He was shunned for his low birth in Pentos, but he had become the richest man in the city. And Jaehaerys was like, well, that's the guy I want for my master of coin. He became unpopular, though, in Westeros and eventually was murdered in the streets. And Jaehaerys was pissed. Jaehaerys hunted down those responsible and was vicious to them. There was no conciliating there. That was all justice for the murdered Alyssa Farman passed through there several times under her real name and her assumed name and before and after she had her ship, the Sun Chaser. In 52, after being allies against the Volantines, Pentosh and Tyrosh entered a trade war. By the year 55, the trade war had run a long way and they were both getting tired of it. So they had Jaehaerys try to conciliate for them. Like, hey, Jaehaerys, can you make the deal for us? Can you negotiate a, 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 something for us? And he did. He negotiated a peace deal. And both sides were really unhappy about it. <laughs> Tyrosh hated it. And the Prince of Pentos, who came to the deal, was sacrificed. <laughs> like, okay, well, there you go. That's, that's not surprising, is it? <laughs> they sacrificed their prince because they didn't like the result. Mm -hmm. The following year was when the Balerian Area episode occurred. And there was reports that there was some monster in the Velvet Hills. And so William the Wasp, a Kingsguard knight, was dispatched with, with some soldiers to go see if it was Balerion. It was not. It was an ambush. And they were all murdered. Sir William's head was returned to Rigo Draz. I think it was Rigo. And they wanted to go, like, one of the small counselors was like, well, we got to go punish the Pentashi. And Jaehaerys is like, they're just brigands outside the city. Like, <laughs> it's not the fault of the whole city. Like, we can't blame them for that. And Nina says, this may have been what Illyrio was referring to. There lived a den of robbers who preyed on all who passed this way. Well, this was a den of robbers who they used a really weird story, a monster that was killing people just maybe to hide the fact that it was them and to keep would-be authorities from coming because authorities might be willing to hunt down people. They may balk at hunting down some monster. But Willem the Wasp was specifically hunting for a monster, so they, they had to check it out. What house is William the Wasp from? Or is he from a house? Or do we know? I don't recall. I don't think he was a Beesbury, but he may have been. Ooh. I like the idea good. that was like a, a Beesbury bastard kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone, not quite a bee, but... Someone could look that up while we're sitting here. Yeah, I don't recall who, what house he's from. Oh, we do know? I think so. In Fire and Blood and as portrayed on House of the Dragon, Damon... Smallwood. Smallwood, okay. Yeah, William Smallwood. Smallwood. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know why he's called William the Wasp. I forget. I don't think I ever heard that character before, so it's cool. Yeah, one of Jaehaerys' oh, King's wait, Guard, no, of course. Was, 
He was just a sworn sword to Wild Smallwood. Oh, okay. So he was. He, might, he literally might have just not. No last me. name. No yeah, house. No last okay. name. No. Cool. All right. He probably took that as his as his personal sigil, the wasp. That maybe that, that might explain it. Anyway, that's not too relevant to Pentos. In Fire and Blood, and as portrayed on House of the Dragon, Damon and Lena were courted by the Prince of Pentos, not just for their prestige, but because they saw the Triarchy as an enemy and the Triarchy hated Damon. So they're like, well, the enemy of the enemy is my friend kind of situation. That, that scene was pretty cool on, on House of the Dragon with the, the Prince of Pentos. Like, and Damon's just like sitting there reserved, like, yeah, I hear all your praise. I know what you're after here, bro. I know what it's, uh, you know, I'm not blown away by all your generosity. I know I'm a badass, powerful badass that you want as an ally, and I'm not going to come cheap. And of course, Bela and Reyna were born there, and of course, Lena died there too. But in the books, Lena dies of Driftmark. So uh, that's a difference that's worth pointing out here. She doesn't die in Pentos in the books. And Reyna is called Reyna of Pentos for a long time. So that's kind of fun to point out as well. At the end of the Dance of the Dragons in the year 131, Pentos joined with Bravos and Laura to take on the Triarchy. This is one of the Many backs and forths over the Stepstones. It's nothing new. We talk about it in our Stepstones episode. And of course, it doesn't stop here. It's, it's an ongoing fight. But Pentos was later cut out of the deal. They were an ally with Bravos and, and Tyrosh later. Lorath was also no longer part of it by this time. And they just got excluded. They're like, actually, Pentos, you're not part of this. We're going to take over the Stepstones with our other allies and you get screwed. What's interesting about this is Pentos had two centuries of war off and on with Bravos that overlaps this time of being their ally. So maybe this is part of why they were cut out of the deal or part of why hostilities resumed because there maybe had been some bad blood or this brought the bad blood back. Because yeah, six wars. Six wars? <laughs> with Bravos. And so at least one of those six would have happened by the point where they were an ally with Bravos and then subsequently dumped from that alliance because the final of those six wars was in the year 209. So for it to have happened over the course of two centuries. We go, well, we got to go well before 131 to cover two centuries from 209. That's only like 78 years. Yeah. Since Bravos, Tyrosh, and Rindun ended up losing to the sneak attack of Oakenfist, who earned his nickname Oakenfist in that sneak attack, Pentos could look at that as sour grapes. Like, good thing they cut us out of the arrangement because then we would have fought a losing naval battle <laughs> against the Westerosi. So it might have been worked to their benefit. They weren't on the losing side of that and didn't have to worry about it. And only a few years later, things got so much better. The Lysine Spring was in full swing. Aha, poetry. And trade in the Narrow Sea was peaking. It was booming. And of course, if trade in the Narrow Sea is booming, Pentos is benefiting greatly, as we, later po as we pointed out earlier. They're literally in the center. So they had to do quite well with that. But then we get back to these wars with Bravos. As I said, the first two centuries of Targaryen rule in Westeros coincided with Pentos fighting those six wars with Bravos. It may have been in part because of that. Something that changed in the Narrow Seas paradigm because of Aegon and King's Landing being built and formed and all this new stuff happening may have changed just the scenario for a lot of houses. And that may have trickle-down effect of that may have been some new trade wars fighting. And of course, we're still relatively new in Bravos' existence at this point. So a lot of things changed. Ostensibly, at least, Bravos was fighting over slave trade too. Yes. Right? Like, I'm sure they don't mind the 
the side effect of, you know, the loot and pillage, the, the land they take from Pintos or whatever. But that was at least ostensibly a motivation. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's at least, there's three things they fought over, apparently. One was, yes, yeah, slavery. Bravo's trying to stop them from it. Also over trade and also over land. Of course, land is the most common thing we see people fighting over, I suppose. Not ideological things, but in this, it's all of those things. So Pentos lost four of those six wars. And one of their two wins, it's pretty sketchy, as I'll, as I'll bring up in a minute here. It wasn't even necessarily a win. But the sixth of the wars was in the year 209. That ended in 209, which is the same year as the Hedge Knight and the Great Spring Sickness. The Great Spring Sickness may have also, in fact, likely hit Essos as well. It probably wasn't only confined to Westeros. And if it hit Westeros, including King's Landing, which it hit big time, it almost certainly hit Pentos, which is, as it says, daily there's ships going back and forth between the two places. It's pretty hard for Pentos to have escaped that. This would have been an ongoing thing that flared up from time to time between Bravos and Pentos. Nina says, the fact that Bravos was willing to fight six wars over at least in part over an ideological issue means that Bravos was feeling pretty secure about itself in their position at the time that they would be willing. Like, you don't start ideological wars when, unless you've got crazy people or you're very well prepared to do it. Like, that's, it's almost a luxury to start an ideological war. It's a weird way to phrase it, but in a, you kind of see where I'm coming from. Like, wars are expensive. And if you're not fighting them over things that you get a profit from, then you must really care about this and you must really have enough to afford it. Yeah, so the both things have to be in place for it to happen. So yeah, in that year 209, while people were dying of the spring sickness, four princes of Pentos were executed <laughs> due to failures in one year due to this failing in the war. And the fifth prince was a guy named Nevio Naratis. He found a way to end the war. He apparently bribed some bravosi to lose a battle or at least make it look like a loss or something in, in between. Then he convinced the Magisters of Pentos to take the leverage of this <laughs> sketchily won battle and use it to sue for peace. Of course, the peace he was trying to protect was all, is synonymous with his own head, <laughs> right? Because if, <it's>, like, <laughs> if he fails here, he's going to die. To not to be the fifth prince executed in one year. It's, you got to be pretty thick to not see that possibility. <laughs> it's like, oh, what am I so worried about? I don't... This is where Nina says, there may be a sense here in which the power of the magistrates is not infinite either. Yes, they can sack and murder any prince they like at pretty much any time, but if they exercise that power too frequently, the puppet won't do what the puppet's supposed to. The puppet's going to very obviously try to save its own life, right? Like, that's just... It's just too blatant in cases like this. Like, four princes murdered or executed in like, what, six or seven months or whatever, however long it was, less than a year. So like, very blatant, right? This, this whole system of ritualized victim blaming or whatever, not even victim blaming, just blaming a guy, scapegoatery, it really starts to fall off a little bit in situations like this where it just becomes, you know, self-defeating. It's also the limits of how and why people accept the government can be pushed. You know, yeah. even Ares, the king, at some point, people are like, okay, well, we're going to revolt now. At some point, you don't have trust in the leader. If ostensibly the idea is it's the prince's fault, and so we're going to kill him and get a new one. Well, like, he's only been prince for like a month. Like, how much of his fault? Like, the, even the people at some point are going to have to blame someone or something other than the prince who hasn't been there long enough to actually have an effect, right? Yeah. 
And so they're going to start to look to other solutions. Hey, you magistrates choosing this prince, maybe it's your fault. You know, mm-hmm. like they're probably they're probably happy and or encourage this prince to come up with a plan. That's a know? good point. Yeah, you're right. Like, how do they, how do the magistrates escape culpability for their selection in the first place? Like, well, we killed him, but you chose him. Like you picked this guy. Yeah. So shouldn't some of the blame fall on you? Yeah, that's a good point. Like if they're too, if they're not careful around it, the whole the whole narrative can flip on them. And th- yeah. the whole point is for them to absolve themselves permanently of any, of, that, of just, well, end of sentence. Retribution. Absolve themselves uh, yeah. permanently. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's a really good point. And Nina also makes another good point about from Bravos' perspective. Yes, there's the ideological thing they want to and put away from do away with slavery, but also in terms of the land, yeah, we talk about how fertile it is. So it's it's very valuable land. And Bravos itself is low on farmable land. They're living in that lagoon, in a misty lagoon. They don't have a lot of farmland. So controlling farmland is is very valuable to them, not to mention they can build a ship in one day. Bravos can. Very famously, the Arsenal can do that. Arsenal with a capital A, right? And, uh, but to fuel the Arsenal, you got to have timber to build those ships with. And the flatlands, we know there's orchards, there's probably other timber. Some of those orchards might literally be just timber farms, right? That's a thing where we have farms also. So either way, you know, they're not buying all their wood from the forest of Kohor, although they probably are getting some of it that way. But they'd rather get it themselves and not have to pay for it. And if you conquer the proper land, it has the trees, and you can do that. And relevant to that is Pentos's relative weakness and vulnerability to warfare, which the Bravosi were sure to take note of. And after losing this final war, the sixth war, the one they sued for peace over, when they lost in 209, this is when they abolished slavery by order of the Bravosi. This is the anecdote mentioned by Illyrio, but also. Their navy was reduced to 20 ships. Rob was like, you can't have more than 20 warships for your state navy and no sellswords. You can't hire sellswords. I don't know how they would be stopped from doing this. If they hire sellswords, it would probably be to fight Bravos and to throw off this, 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 this yoke that Bravos has placed on them. But they would have to do that secretly before Bravos got wind of it. And you know, maybe that would have to be handled carefully. Time. Limits on how, how many and how quick they could do it yes. without it being discovered. You know? Yeah, and in the meantime, what are they going to do with just 20 ships? Like, they're going to build some ships in secret? That's really hard to do. Building ships in secret is hard, hard to pull off. It's enough to defend what they have, but not enough to go attack someone else, which is what Bravos is worried about, yeah. right? And so that's super relevant going forward as well. It's only 20 ships and no sellswords. We talked about why Pentos is vulnerable. Well, there you go. That's, ex- damn. Like, that's all they have? Danny... It's like one strafing run on Drogon, and that's that's the twenty ships gone right there, <laughs> you know. And let alone someone else coming. Like if the tattered prince brings the wind blown in, like those ships aren't good for anything against his land assault, you know. Worth noting that it's still like I I, I was trying to point out earlier that I think that they have. I think their defense is the value that they provide to everyone by being this hub of commerce. It just doesn't behoove anyone. China could take over Taiwan if they wanted to relatively easily, but it's just not worth it. Like, you know, it's not worth destroying this profitable center. You, you make more from it by it existing than taking it over. Yeah. You know, it, same thing kind of like Japan after World War II had to forego its military, but the US and most of the rest of the world didn't want it to continue warring. It wanted it to be productive. Everyone benefited from it focusing on productivity rather than 
warfare. And so I, I feel like that's a big part of where Pentos's security comes from is the lack of motivation to attack it. Yeah. Now, now that might fall apart. It had, you know, same thing could be said of Genoa. But it still got attacked, you know, several yeah. times over the yeah, centuries. Yeah, unlike the Dothraki, right? Like the Dothraki give, they get tons of money from Pentos. What's different about Pentos is like, well, Danny's like, why don't the Dothraki just destroy the slaver cities? It'd be easy. It's like, well, they have nowhere to sell their slaves to. Well, they're not selling their slaves to Pentos. There is, because slavery is illegal there, right? Now, now there's, there is slaves in Pentos. That's actually our next section. Especially because the Dothraki aren't going to travel all the way to Pentos to sell, even if they could sell them there. Why would they go all the way to Pentos when Astapor... Yunkai, Marine, Volant, these are all much closer to the Dothraki Sea. Kohor, all these places are way closer. I don't know why they would walk all the way over there to do that. They would only come all the way to Pentos to marry Daenerys or something like that. Or if they, if something very big changes and they actually want to attack it. But yeah, they come there, they get their money, and then they go home. So yeah, that's part of... Like making numbers up. But they can go to Pentos once a year and get, you know, 8,000 gold pieces or they could sack the city and get 30,000 gold pieces one time and then nothing next year, yeah. nothing next year, nothing next year. So it's better to just maintain this profitable system. Yeah, like if Gal Drogo were to sack Pentos, well, he just destroyed the city where they gave him a nine-tiered mansion. Like, doesn't he, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't he rather just have that and not fight at all and just go fight someone else? And also, it just, the Dithraki like a challenge and it doesn't, it wouldn't be one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, this would be too easy, man. you know? <laughs> The challenge would be the other Dathraki hordes that also go to Pentos yeah. for tribute that are now mad at them. Yeah. The other three cities that depend on Travmenta that now feel like they need to do something about the Dothraki. Like people would mobilize in response. It's true. Brandilyn Price sends a super chat. Says, "Great stream. I'm glad I was able to make it live for the first time in a while." Well, to any of you else who has, who has trouble making it to our streams on a regular basis, we appreciate it when you can make it, and we love your participation. Super Chats are a great way to support the show. You can also support us the other means we suggest from time to time, Patreon, Spotify, or donations through our website. Yeah, let's talk about the situation of slavery in Pentos because, well, it, it's been banned, but it still happens. And we see that in a number of places through a number of POVs. Let's talk about it first off with Tyrion. Slaves? The dwarf asked pointedly. The fat man stroked one of the prongs of his oiled yellow beard, a gesture Tyrion found remarkably obscene. Slavery is forbidden in Pentos by the terms the Triti, the Bravosi, imposed on us a hundred years ago. Still, they will not refuse you. Tyrion figured it out quickly enough, but long before that, in her first chapter, Danny did as well. Here's that quote. Illyrio's servants entered, bowed, and set about their business. They were slaves, a gift from one of the magister's many Dothraki friends. There was no slavery in the free city of Pentos. Nonetheless, they were slaves. The old woman, small and gray as a mouse, never said a word, but the girl made up for it. She was Illyrio's favorite, a fair-haired, blue-eyed wench of 16 who chattered constantly as she worked. Another fair-haired, blue-eyed person, very young, that Illyrio's favorite. Now, remember when Illyrio's like, I almost slept with Danny myself, but thought she was too timid. And then I summoned my bed warmer and slept with her instead. It's probably this girl. Yeah. So, he's gross. <laughs> uh, but we knew, you knew that already. Yeah. But the point here is to talk about how these women and servants have no choice. They're basically slaves. Like Sean said earlier, a lot of them are bonds, bonded slaves. They're in debt permanently to Illyrio. 
This is a city that is very sophisticated in its way of getting around the laws imposed on them. They've had almost 100 years. It's been the year 209 is when this was imposed on them. So they've had 81-ish or 91-ish years of figuring out how to have slaves without officially having slaves. And that encompasses all of Illyria's life. Illyria's entire lifespan has come in this span of existence for Pentos when slavery has been banned, but still happens quite a lot. It doesn't really look like they're hiding it all that well. I mean, a 13-year-old girl figured it out immediately, right? I mean, Danny is insightful, but she can't be the only one. <laughs> you know, like others have noticed this. But what Bravos is, I guess, content to just let things be the way they are for now. And that could be prove very interesting if Danny becomes displeased with this arrangement. I mean, she knows. She noticed it right away. Is she going to come back and be like, all right, we're time to have a reckoning for this so-called free city. We've already talked about how the slaves will probably rise up in Volantis and welcome her there. Lice, Lise, maybe as well. Tyrosh, perhaps. Now, I don't expect all these things to have necessarily happen on screen. I could see us... My headcanon kind of is Danny having a chapter in Pentos where she's looking back on having just taken Lise and Volantis. Maybe maybe we see Volantis, but Lise and Mir and Tyrosh, kind of doubt it. Kind of doubt we see those firsthand from Danny's POV. Maybe we do, but in, in minor flashbacks after she's already done it, yeah, that'd be a way to get all that done without getting bogged down and having, us having three different city taken over chapters, right? Just mm-hmm. all the detail. I mean, I, I'm all for that, but I don't see it coming, <laughs> you know? It would mean another book. Yeah, that's like a whole book of Danny's (laughs) conquests throughout Essos, right? It could really go a lot of different ways. Like Pentashi could be like, "I this is bull, you guys, this fake non-slavery thing you're doing needs to end. I'm going to torch the whole thing. Or because they're so weak, maybe she just is able to knock them down and, and impose her will on them, which in a queer sort of way, might save them from being destroyed because they're so weak, she might be able to coerce them into better behavior. Whether or not that holds is another matter, but the fact that they have a small military actually might save them because they're, they're not too tough a nut to crack. She doesn't have to just burn the whole thing down and start over. Although she, she might decide to do that anyway. <laughs> but for now, she's actually kind of loyal to Illyria. She's like, I don't want to give the city to the Tattered Prince. Illyrio lives there and Illyrio's our friend. Like, well, Illyrio, I wouldn't call him your friend. He might be a benefactor, patron, supporter perhaps, but yeah, he's not your friend. He will turn on you if he can, if he needs to, or if he sees the the profit in it. So, Danny may still have a little bit of naivete there, but Tyrion is not fooled and Tyrion is not unlikely to be advising her and could quickly disabuse her of all that. On the other hand, Barristan says Danny should trust Illyrio, which is bad advice. But <laughs> Barristan's not the most skilled at intrigue or such things. That's not his, his forte. A side effect of Bravos's small military, I'm sorry, Pentos's small military imposed by Bravos, is that a lot, a lot of people who would be soldiers, or people who have that attitude, who are kind of have a warrior bent to them, there's no military for them to join. So there's a lot of sellswords up for hire there. A lot of Pentashi sellswords exist. It's kind of alongside that, like performers and people who have to make a living with their bodies and their, their natural abilities rather than anything they can learn because that's not available to them. So that could be important as well. 
I had this thought earlier when you mentioned that is when it comes to being a sellsword is the willingness to risk your body. However good a soldier you are or aren't, just your willingness to get in the line of fire is, you know, when you don't have anything else, when you don't have another route out of poverty or slavery, that's a risk some people are willing to take. Yeah, absolutely. Part of how you good good at being a warrior is you have to go to war. So Yep, take some risks and come out of it. You know, if you're lucky enough to survive, then you've got some some credibility. So here's another quote from the World of Ice and Fire that talks about how this sort of is it or isn't it not slavery situation is handled. These provisions remain the law in Pentos to this day, though certain observers have noted that many Pentoshi ships evade the prohibition against the slave trade by running Lysine or Mirish banners up their masts when challenged. Whilst in the city itself, there are tens of thousands of free bond servants who seem to be slaves in all but name, for they are collared and branded much like their counterparts in Lys, Mir, and Tyrosh, and subject to similar savage disciplines. In law, these bond servants are free men and women with the right to refuse service as they will, provided they are not in debt to their masters. Almost all of them are, however, since the value of their labor is oft less than the costs of the food, clothing, and shelter provided them by those they serve, so that their debt grows rather than diminishes over time. You'd think they'd want to just return to outright slavery, but there might be elements in the city that prefer this sort of under-the-radar arrangement, even though it's not really that concealed. It might, there might be more money in it for them. I'm certainly not uh, ascribing empathic, sympathetic reasons here, just whatever makes them more money. Like, they're given gifts. Like, the whole thing of giving gifts, like the Dothraki, like, that's not buying and selling slaves, technically. It's another, like, legalese way to get around it. Like, oh, I didn't buy these slaves. They were given to me by a Dothraki. Do I have to free them now? Like, well, how does that even work? You know, I don't know. Probably there's probably weird, obscure, arbitrary, like, exceptions coded into the law. Things like that. Probably the biggest current motivation is to maintain this peace with Bravos, right? They made this treaty, this agreement that ended a war that included no slavery, no swords, and so on. Yeah. So they may, you know, maybe they quote unquote won it for the, you know, economic benefits, you know, of denying people their rights, but they, but they don't, but they are more than willing to semantically word it and organize it in a way that keeps peace with Bravos. And, mm. and on some level, Bravos might even get it too. They might be like, they're not really following the war, the, the, the rules. But how far do they have to go before we declare war again? You know, yeah. How, you know. yeah. And that's a big deal. Like declaring, because it's probably, uh, they're still a trading partner, most certainly. And like yeah. a lot of aspects, a lot of people, a lot of powers in Bravos would be kind of wary of disturbing that just to do something that maybe won't have any effect. Like if they can't enforce it, then like it'll probably just go back to this way. Like, yeah, I don't know if it would even... Start. It might even temporarily make things worse yeah. for the quote-unquote slaves. And, yeah. and, and also, they might have these unintended consequences with other alliances and trade agreements. Like if they attack Pintos and that makes, I don't know, Cersei mad or whatever, yeah. then she wants to do something to Bravo. You know, mm. the, not that, you know, I, I, the geopolitical a lot of times, even when you're... Right. Even when you're trying to do the right thing, sometimes you have to be careful to not 
make things or your your goal of doing the right thing is to make things better for everybody. Yeah. So when it comes to clearing war, you might not be making things better for everybody. You got to be really careful. Yeah, that's true. Like like it like Danny faced the same problem, you know, in Marine. That's the same thing she's learning about. She's like, yeah, like in the long term, all these people who would be enslaved, their lives are better. But in the short term, a few at least some percentage of these slaves are actually going to have a worse life because they had pretty good positions, like they were treated pretty well, you know, like now they don't even have a job. They don't even have a place to live. Like they have their freedom, but you're an 80-year-old person that's been a slave your whole life. You really like want to, like, what do you have now? Like, that's not good, right? So there's, there is, yeah, it's, it's tricky. You know, of course, the better thing is to do it, but you just have to plan it out well and make sure to think about the implications and on and on. And it's not that easy, especially for like, this young girl who has no world experience, you know, like the, the leaders of Bravos don't haven't necessarily even figured it out. And now ostensibly they have more experience and resources and such. So. Yeah. So earlier I misspoke. You asked if we know of yeah. a female Pentashi, and we do know one, and her name does end in A. Tiana mm-hmm. of the Tower, Tiana of Pentos, Magor, one of Magor's wives, who was also basically his master of whispers. She was a torturer, a pretty nasty piece of work all around. She was a Bastard daughter of a magister, apparently a, a dancer, very attractive. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about her in detail some other day because she's an interesting character. And we'll have plenty of time for her when we're dealing with Magor's reign or maybe her specifically. Now, Rigo Draz is another one we talked about a little bit. He used Jaharis' master coin. We talked about the, the savageness of his death and Jaharis' revenge on those people or justice against those people. He's a good story that we'll tell another time. There's a lot of parallels between him and Illyrio. So that's interesting. Uh, we'll talk about him. Both of them kind of were lowborn that rose to be really powerful and rich and involved in politics. Although Illyrio is a lot more involved in politics than Rigo was. So Illyrio, yeah, he's often referred to as a cheesemonger, which maybe gives us a clue to some of the food that's made there. I mean, Pentos isn't known for like luxury goods. It is known for trade. And we know we, we hear about all the farmlands and orchards around the the area. So there may be a lot of food as part of the exports and import. Well, more exports and imports probably, but exporting some food, importing others. I guess there's a lot of cheese made in Pentos. That makes sense. It's something that wouldn't catch a lot of notice as an element in a big fantasy story, big fantasy epic, just production of food. But cheese is also is interesting because it's not a luxury good, yet it is a luxury good. Like fancy cheeses are luxury goods, but there's also your day-to-day cheeses that start even the poorest people will have access to. You know, it's cheese certainly isn't exclusive to Italy, much less Genoa, but there are a lot of Italian mm. cheeses, mozzarella and Parmesan and so on. And I wonder if that could be an, easily another parallel. Yeah. Illyrio, his wealth, remember, got him to the level where, I mean, wealth speaks in Pentos. The, the wealthiest have the most powerful, or have the most power there. He was able to marry the daughter of a cousin of the Prince of Pentos. But when he took Sarah as a lover, who, of course, we've had a lot to say about her, probable blackfire, the, the palaces of the prince was closed to him. They saw that as an insult. So there's definitely still a lot of elitism in Pentos, even though it's not rooted in Valyrian heritage. Plague killed Sarah. Remember, we mentioned the Great Spring Sickness most likely affected Pentos back in 209. Of course, Sarah didn't die in 209. She died probably more like in the 260s or 270s. And just a reminder that as a trade port, it's going to be very susceptible to plagues because of, yeah, just the nature of the way diseases spread and 
you know, you're bringing it on a ship and lots of people. Yeah, like, yeah, that can get go quickly. At one point, half the population of Genoa was killed to the Black Plague. Oof, damn. It's just hard to comprehend yeah, numbers like that. <laughs> So Pentos is also allows for the collecting of exiles. Illyrio is in a is a collector of obscure and unsavory things. Tyrion says one of those that he doesn't specifically mention is exiles. <laughs> he collects exiles. He collected John Connington. He collected the Golden Company, sort of. He collected this Danny and Viserys. I mean, and by being so close to King's Landing, enables a lot of them. Like he's the first stop for a lot of exiles. Allows him to kind of snatch them right up or arrange for them to be brought to him, like Tyrion, right? He actually planned on bringing Aegon and Danny, Aegon, Young Griff, and Danny together for a marriage at Pentos, which would have been a really interesting like do-over of her marriage to Drogo. That's kind of what, in Lyra's mind, that's kind of what they're doing there. But that isn't going to happen. <laughs> but uh, of course, we still expect things to happen in Pentos. It just won't be <laughs> a marriage of Aegon and, and Danny, especially because Aegon's already in Westeros. <laughs> As we said before, Tyrion's Pentashi name was Yolo. We, we mentioned Grolio very briefly. Yolo. Gro- you mean- yeah, Yolo. <laughs> yeah, Yolo. <laughs> Grolio is Pentashi, the poor admiral that sailed those ships over to meet Danny and Karth and pick her up with Arston, a.k.a. Barristan. Grolio was executed by the Miranese over, or the Yunkish, the Miranese and Yunkish over the death of Yezenzo Yorkaz, or whatever that guy's name is, the, the dude who was trampled at the gladiatorial games at the reopening of the pits when, when Drogon showed up. Poor guy. His arc is nothing but sadness. <laughs> like he, First, Danny makes him go to Meereen and, and Astapor, actually first Astapor to buy the Unsullied, then takes apart his ships to build battering rams, and he's very bitter about that, and then then she's perplexed by them wanting him as a as a hostage because he's kind of a nobody. Like, why? What's his What's his value? You know. And then he's he has a wife and kids back home, so he's valuable to them. But like, he has no political value. And then they execute him, which is part of why they do that. They're like, well, they're not going to start anything over this guy's death. But it shows we can we can you know kind of push the envelope a little bit and exercise our authority and kind of move move towards executing the dragons, which is what they really wanted. It was the year 262 when the tattered prince, aged 23, had his choosing to be the prince of Pentos. The one who had just been beheaded, he's like, I don't want that fate. And he doesn't want to be beholden to the magistrate, the magisters, the nobility, the 40 families, and this, I'm not going to be your sacrificial lamb, y'all. He was not the first to notice this obvious thing, this obvious potential. And not the first to leave rather than accept. But he is the most recent, both A Song of Ice and Fire, I think Dick Straw or one of the members of the Windblown tells this story. The World of Ice and Fire also says the same line. It says, he fled never to return. I don't know about never to return, you know. <laughs> he hasn't returned yet, but he, I don't know, I wouldn't say never. I think he's coming back. Nina says, the Tattered Prince is very much not a nice person. <laughs> I think what he wants is to move Pentos to the opposite extreme from what it is now. Instead of a system where the collective council of magisters can murder the executive at their whim, the Tattered Prince wants a system where he can murder the magisters at his whim. This would not be Pentos on Pentos's terms. This would be Pentos on the Tattered Prince's terms. His personal domain where he can rule as an absolute authority or executive. I totally agree with that. 
I think Nina nailed it, and we might get that for a short term, or we may find... Yeah, I mean, Danny doesn't want that, but Barrison has already agreed to it. And then, is she going to be stuck with that when she returns? Will Barrison even still be alive when he retur- when she returns? So there's a lot of ways for this to go that are very unpredictable, and I, I, I like that a lot. I, you know, some things we can predict about this series, but some things like, yeah, it's really hard to say. Also, how how much room is there for negotiation on the part of the Tatter Prince, both both in word and in practice? Mm. Like, if you know, if he makes this move and Barris and okay it, but he's not there, and Danny comes back, she might be like, okay, fine, as long as you do X, Y, Z. Like, as long as there's no slavery. Imposes additional conditions or whatever. Yeah. Right, and he's like, okay, sure, fine, yeah, I get to be the king of the city, and I just don't. And then he can also just not do the things he said he was going to do after the fact when she goes off to another continent or yeah, whatever. She's embroiled so. against the others in winter and the other yeah. kings and queens of Westeros, the prince of the, the Tatter Prince might be like, I don't know if she's coming out of this. <laughs> I can easily, I can just do what I want. I can do what I want and pay the consequences later. Say, oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me pay you off. Pay her off. Pay her off like the Dothraki get paid off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that'd be enough for her, but she probably, she also probably won't survive everything in order to come back and punish him. But it could be an interesting footnote in, you know, the Dream of Spring as we hear about whatever, what's happening in the various states of affairs of various parts of the world. Pentos will likely be included in that. Do y'all remember the ship the Slow-Eyed made? The very sad tale of a, a ship that went all the way to Karth and was sunk by the false lights of among the sisters. The Lord Godric Burrell jokes about how he got pepper off a slow-eyed maid, and he's laughing about it, and Davos is like enjoying the pepper and like, you asshole, <laughs> you sank this ship. You let, and he <laughs> thinks how horrible it is to go all the way. He's like, the slow-eyed maid went all the way to the Jade Sea and back and was almost home before lured to its death by these false lights. But the slow-eyed maid is the source of the rumors about Danny. It brought back the tales of Danny and her dragons to Pentos. And the slow-eyed maid's executive officer spoke with another dude that Davos then spoke with or heard overheard in this tavern. So, mm, yes. I prefer Pepper to rumors. <laughs> <Just me. laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> One of the galleys that, that was seized for the hard home campaign, remember John had a bunch of galleys just taken, like, nope, any ships currently at the East Watches Harbor or we're going to use them for the rescue mission. One of them was the Pentashi galley. That ship may have been sunk. <laughs> it's one of the ones that may have been sunk, so we don't know if it's going to get out. But if it does get out, it'll go back to Pentos and spread tales about what's happening beyond the wall, which is maybe the vector for the wider world to learn about the invasion of Mance and or the actual others and giants and things like that. Like people outside of Westeros are going to hear about giants and zombies or whites. You can make me call them zombies, Sean. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> whites, whites and others and stuff like that. Like that's a really interesting possibility. Just the, the using, thinking of Pentos is just a vector for news. Again, it being the center of trade means it's also the center for news and rumors to spread or a center, not the center. But. So that's really interesting. Like this could spread this away for the wider world to learn about that. That vector of information very much likely to pass through Pentos. As I said before, Penny and her family probably aren't from Pentos, but they were hired for the Purple Wedding there. And it's, you would go there to hire performers possibly because that's a place known for performers. But yeah. And the Carthine Warlocks, they didn't know where Danny went or where she was going to go after leaving Carth. 
but they were going to look in, car- in Pentos first. That's where they were going to head first. Instead, they found Euron, or Euron found them. Mm-hmm. Semantics. They, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever you want to put it, they wish that hadn't happened that way. <laughs> they <laughs> probably wish they had stayed home. Yeah, well, karma. Brutal, brutal karma. Maybe a little too much, but... You know, they went looking for trouble. They found it. Maybe it'll come back on Euron. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I don't expect Euron to have a happy ending. (laughs) As I've said on the show before, when several of us attended a signing by George R. Martin, when I've handed him a copy of the map you see behind you, the known world map in particular, he remarked on how nice the map was because, of course, it's Michael Clarefeld. Of course, it's nice. Yeah. He said, and soon it will all be on fire. And I was like, what? Spoiler, I yelled and laughed. (laughs) Surely he didn't mean all the cities of Essos would be in flames, although I guess it's possible. But I do think it's more likely he means a lot of them will go that way. Danny passing that way, pretty high on that list for Pentos. Very possible. It's right up there with Volantis. Here's a conversation I want to draw your attention to. Quote. Mary Mazdor betrayed me. I burned her for it. Mary Mazdor was in your power. In Pentos, you shall be in Ilario's power. It is not the same. I know the Magister as well as you. Well, Jorah, you were right when you said that at the time. But now, yeah, still right, but less. Like, if you have your dragons and you're Unsullied and you're Dothraki, you could still be in Ilario's power, but he's in your power too. He can't just assassinate you. Because if you die in his home... I mean, he would get blamed for that. The Dothraki would just come for him. You know, that, that he can't do that <laughs> without massive consequences. So I don't think he's going to do that. He would have to be very careful about how he turns on his so-called puppet. Especially if Drogon's like right there too. <laughs> and, and that's the statement. So yeah, Jorah said that at the beginning of A Storm of Swords. Not... Things are so different. And she might even have the wind blown on her side, like with the tattered prince and all that. So yeah, it's just Jorah's statement is interesting and useful, but thing, the situation has changed a lot since then. It is worth noting, though, that if Mary Mazdor was less of a significant person in the political structure. That's right. Too, yes. there, there wasn't some retribution for her killing Mary Mazdor. For Ilario, there might be, whether it's as simple as like the influence he could have wielded to help her, now he's not there to do that. That's or true. people who were allied with him who now want to work against Danny, even if they can't necessarily stand up and defeat her dragon, they still might behind the scenes sink our ships or yeah. tell, you know, spread false rumors or whatever else. Just so work against her it, when they could be working for she her. She has yeah. more to lose killing Ilario than she did killing Mary Mazdor. So that's true. Yeah, that's true. That, that part, Jorah is correct on. Yeah, if the castle of Harrenhal can burn, perhaps the brick walls of Pentos can as well. That's one potential fate for it. Or if she doesn't want to send her dragons against it, again, Unsullied, Dothraki, Sellswords, plenty of options. <laughs> and they don't have an army at all, so they would probably just give up. I don't know that it would... That's one reason I'm not sure it would come to outright devastation for Pentos. Even their, like I said, even their naval defenses would go from stout to pretty useless, even with those... Even though they only have 20 ships, again, protecting the inlet, there's maybe they could do that, but not with a dragon or three in play. So a number of the details about Pentos do paint it as rich but weak. The Dothraki make the Pentashi nervous. That's in the Danny's very first chapter. That might be a little bit of a low-key foreshadowing. However, they're not a slave city at the moment, so they can't, you can't expect them to just rise up like Volantis would, the way the Widow of the Waterfront says they will. 
But maybe they will. Maybe they're, they understand their situation. Maybe they say, yeah, we're basically slaves. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, the semantics, the dichotomy, the, the small differences may amount to be large differences, depending on how things play out. Illyrio even has uh, unsullied guards. Like, those are slaves, <laughs> right? Like, it's just, it's so blatant, right? They were purchased and then freed. Yeah, maybe. like how Danny freed, Danny freed hers and they just opted to stay with her and fight with her because they don't know any other life. Like, all we're good at is fighting. Like, this seems like a good place to be. But here's another quote from Tyrion. Slavery may be forbidden by the laws of Pentos, yet you have a finger in that trade as well, and maybe a whole hand. And yet you conspire for the Dragon Queen and not against her. Why? What do you hope to gain from Queen Daenerys? He says he just wants to be master of coin, but I just do not believe that for a second. Tyrion doesn't either. <laughs> the dude is so rich. Like, I just don't like, why? What would that do for him? More wealth? He doesn't even want to... He points out he doesn't want Castle Rock. Like, Viserys promised him Castle Rock. And he's like, I like my mansion better. I don't want to live in Castle Rock. You know, he doesn't even sound like he wants to go to Westeros. You know, it is... What do you, what do you think he actually does want? I don't know. I mean, it could be like a little finger thing where he just wants as much power as he can have. Like the guy's persona exudes greed and excess, right? Like he's massively overweight I, and all that. And I kind of agree, but I still think that like being master of coin is about the most power he could have. Perhaps, perhaps ruling behind the throne as well. Yeah, I mean, he might want that, but I don't know if that's his ultimate goal. You know, I think he would be fine to be that, but I don't know if that's like, that's what he's doing all this for. Just to be master of coin for Westeros? Like it seems like, very convoluted. So maybe yeah, there is some yeah. truth in him wanting to see the son of Sarah on the throne. Yeah, I think it might. I think it makes more sense for it to be personal at the level of high power he has. But on like my counterpoint to that is that I just can't ever relate to these like power hungry people where like I can't help but think like, okay, like you're very successful. Why are you still grasping for more? Yet across the point, like, people do it. They, they do. They do keep grasping yeah. for more, even though you're like, well, you should be satisfied. You have so much power. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes they're just an ambitious person. Like, I don't know. A lot definitely depends on what transpires between Danny and Illyrio. If Illyrio can worm his way out of the things Danny's going to figure out. Okay, so let's piece some of this together. Nina's got some good points on this as well. Danny's aware Illyrio's basically using slaves. But she also sees him as a friend and as a benefactor. So maybe she's willing to let that slide. Maybe she's going to come and be like, okay, you have to let your slaves go though. Like I'm, I can't have my supporters owning slaves. I'm the mother of, I'm the breaker of chains. Like that just doesn't align. Plus I, it's wrong. Illyria might be just willing to just do whatever she says because he knows what's at stake and she'll just burn him otherwise. She's, she's given those vibes off. Like, yeah, I will kill you if you are a slaver. So it's tricky to see which way she'll go on that. But as we've also expressed, let me read Nina's point here. How long will that trust maintain? It might be kind of flimsy. Danny may, once more things come to light, she may change her opinion on Illyrio very, very dramatically. Because Tyrion knows something pretty critical about Illyrio that Danny doesn't, namely that Illyrio's plan for the better part of two decades was to install Aegon, not Danny or her brother, that she was originally part of the setup. She was the distraction. She was fodder, cannon fodder, basically. Illyria didn't intend for Danny to survive. 
that only changed when she hatched dragons. Then they pivoted their plan. We're like, oh, wait, this is a totally unexpected result. We should absolutely include the dragons in our plan now that they exist again. Like, whoa, couldn't have possibly accounted for that possibility. So it sounds like Illyrio cares more about this Aegon person who might be his son. Tyrion might point that out as well if he figures that out fully. So yeah, Danny might come to realize that so much of this is different. She still might want to use Illyrio and feel like, well, we still need him. Like you said, Sean, like she's even finding these things out might mean, okay, I don't trust him anymore, but we still need him and my greater goals are more important than solving Pentos's issues. I mean, she might become kind of jaded with that after the difficulties of Marine. It's another pot. Or she might just be all more aggressive about it. You know, like it's just so hard to figure. There's so many possibilities. Depending how it goes, she might trust him more. Hmm. If she learns this stuff about him, understands his motivations, he levels with her about it all, it may be a greater level of trust. He is convinced. Yeah, I mean, and Bar- and don't forget Varus is involved and- in all this. Like, Elir could point out, well, look, my guy over there, if you lose me, you lose him. And you need, yeah. you really want him And the network side. of spies that goes along yeah. with it. And, and, and also, it's not like there's no way to make money without slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Ilario might be happy to shed the slaves because he's, especially the, the, the capital and position he has already, he can continue being successful and wealthy. So yeah, Danny, you want to get rid of slaves? I'll spearhead that for you. Gen- mm. He might be very genuine about it, and um, genuinely, yeah, because he needs to do it to get his to, for his greater goals to be accomplished. Yeah, and, and and you're right. To him, it might be a lot of work, but it might but it might not cost him anything. He might still come out ahead or break even, or yeah, as long as the end even result if it costs him a lot. Like if you have like twenty five million dollars instead of thirty million dollars, that costs me five million. Yeah, but I still have twenty five million dollars. <laughs> so I'll be okay. This yeah. is gonna. My bigger goals or my alliance with Danny or whatever else can can move forward. In Illyria's case, we'd probably be more forever using billion than million. But yeah, your point is still well, well taken. <laughs> also, on top of everything, Tyrion knows or has sussed out the truth that Aegon's not the son of Rhaegar. Illyrio, is Illyria going to try to sell that lie to Danny too? Will he try to sell the lie if he figures that Tyrion has figured it out the lie, figured out that lie? Like, it's another thing. Is Illyria going to be like, oh, I think Tyrion's probably figured out that this isn't really Rhaegar's son, so I better not. I won't tell that lie. But we need, but maybe he'll try to convince Danny to tell that lie because it's important to to tell Westeros that lie. Right. It's another way yeah. he might actually win more trust from Danny yeah. by telling the truth about that lie. And she may also understand the value of that lie. But ultimately, I think she won't accept it because she's, in her vision, the slayer of lies. The cloth dragon, mummer's dragon on poles is almost certainly Aegon. And she, if she's the slayer of that lie, that foreshadows her ending this, this, this whole thing, this charade, not going along with it. But maybe she has to go along with it for a little while. Maybe she doesn't just immediately try to torch it. <laughs> maybe she doesn't. Yeah. Maybe he does. Maybe she doesn't believe Tyrion at first. I don't know. Or she's like, well, what is this little dude trying to sell me a lie for? Maybe he's just trying to get casually rocked. Like Tyrion's awfully convincing, though. But so is Illyrio. So this could get could get interesting. <laughs> it, it would be an interesting dilemma if there was a marriage arranged and and it got all this support behind it, and then she discovered now that all the plans are built around this. Oh wait, he's not really who he said he was. Yeah, or who he thought he was. But but all the alliances and plans and stability are all built around it. Does she now shed it? Can it survive even with the truth coming out? Maybe it's enough. Another reason Danny might feel a huge sense of betrayal is that there's the prophecy, the prophecy of a treason. She could think this is the treason for love. Illyrio is 
loved Sarah and is trying to put the child of his love on the throne of Westeros. So whether that's true or not is almost irrelevant. It's whether Danny sees it as true, is convinced it is or one way. But wasn't one of the betrayals for gold? Like if he wants to be master of coin, or if that's what he's telling her, she might interpret it that way too. She might right. be like one way or the other, this is a betrayal. It looks yeah. bad. Yeah, it's like, well, this looks like one of the prophesied betrayals here. It could really look that way. And then she could become far from trusting Illyrio, just that complete flipped into this guy is very untrustworthy. So that's a really interesting con- possible conundrum to come up with. I think it was pretty likely to happen. Guessing how she navigates it is a lot trickier. There's so many possibilities. So Nina suggests that Danny has more motivation to hand Pentos over to the Tattered Prince than she has to remove and to allow Aegon to take the Iron Throne. Like she has more motivation to give up Pentos than to support Aegon, which is an odd spot to be in. Earlier, we referenced this quote we're about to have here about Illyria's odd trust with his own people. Quote, As for my household, they love me well. None would betray me. Cherish that thought, my fat friend. One day we will carve those words upon your crypt. Yep, we might. (laughs) I wonder if Tyrion is really part of that we. (laughs) I wonder Mm. if Tyrion will see the death of, of Illyrio. And we've pointed out many times that yes, Pentos is the closest to King's Landing. But it's even closer to Dragonstone. So that is a jumping off point, potentially. That proximity, along with their small military, might help save Pentos from greater devastation. They're just as rotten as some of the others, but as I said, their weaknesses might be a bit of a boon. Danny might value it more as a base than as a place to make a moral stand. Might be something that she doubles back to to deal with later while moving on to bigger and more important things. And with Dragonstone so close, she might be kind of eager to get, like, well, Dragonstone's just right there. Like, I don't want to get bogged down here in Pentos like I did in Marine or whatever. Westeros is, things are happening there now. And her advisors will probably agree with that. I mean, Tyrion and Barristan and maybe not quite as much Makoro because he's not Westerosi, but all the Westerosi with her want her to go back to Westeros because they want to go back there too. They want to live in the country they're from and be reaccepted there and, and yeah, all that. So that's important. There's so many, there's so many facets to this that they could easily go one way or the other. You know, yeah. like just, just the right presentation to Danny or just the wrong move by Alario or just the right, the, the timing of, you know, the order things come up. It seems like it could have these huge swings as to whether or not Pentos gets torched or Pentos is Danny's strongest ally to whether or not they launch from Pentos or to Pentos. You know, mm. it's, I, I can see accounting for all these factors, uh, the way these things are all sort of intertwined and these kind of pending plot lines that George has going. I'm starting to see why people want the next book to come up. <laughs> just now, just now starting <laughs> to get it. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One other wrinkle here is Pentos's long history of befriending and supporting her family. That might be something that she looks positively on. Aegon had an alliance with them. Magor, Daemon, Lena, Bela, Reyna, Jaehaerys. Rhaenyra wanted to hide some of her kids there during the war. I mean, there's a lot of connection there, and Danny might look at that as a plus. But it's also kind of far in the past, so it may not be relevant. She might be like, look, y'all, that... 
Rhaenyra is the most recent of those, and that's 170 years ago. <laughs> As the show famously said, 171 years before Daenerys Targaryen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that may not matter so much. Like, again, he's doing a lot of things different than prior Targaryens, but same token. It's that family. She is her source of connection to the Iron Throne as well. So, yeah, I don't know if she can just throw all of it away. Yeah. Super interesting. Pentos is, as I hope we've displayed for you, a big part in Dream of, or Winds of Winter and probably A Dream of Spring as well, but probably more Winds of Winter given it's directly in Danny's past, both narratively and logistically for her return to Westeros. A lot of really interesting plot lines. Illyrio, the Tattered Prince, biggest among them, but also the whole Blackfire stuff is still running through Pentos at this point, even though it's uh, they've already landed in Westeros. Their sort of brain power, a lot of the support is coming from Pentos. So yeah, a lot to go, a lot to set up, a lot of interesting stuff. We'll see one day how it all plays out. Davey Max sends a super chat, says, thanks, History of Westeros, for all that you do. We appreciate that. Even though nature and technology are both conspiring against us today, we plow forward. People said we need to give them another bonus hour because of this. A whole bonus hour? Whoa, I don't know <laughs> if I prepared a whole bonus hour, but you know. <laughs> we'll come back with more content in the future. I'll tell you what, folks. We'll, we'll make sure the next couple episodes are a little longer. How about that? <laughs> Maybe not the next one. The next one's a scripted episode. It's Mantaris, and those are by nature a little shorter. We don't have as much open discussion, so by nature, they're shorter. But it should be a good one. A lot more Valyrian lore, talking about the magic. And Mantaris sits right on the outskirts of the ruined peninsula. It's like right there. Part of its territory would have been obliterated, but part of it survived, like where the city rests. It's kind of an interesting like estuary of fallout and normalcy, but also Valyrian ancient magic and things like that. It's not at all like Volantis, even though it's similar proximity to the ruined peninsula. Very different situation. We'll, we'll be getting into that next week. That, like I said, will be a scripted episode, so there won't be a live stream. And the trivia question. The, this is one where I actually left the clue in the episode. If you were paying close attention, you may have noticed the answer. The question again was the Pentashi historian slash politician Jezio Haratis wrote a book called Before the Dragons that claimed Pentos and what other city were actually founded before the Freehold? The answer is Lorath. Yes, Lorath. And we have an episode on Lorath, so you could go right to that one next if you haven't listened to it or feel like it's time for a re-listen. Other episodes that are along these lines that refer to things we talked about in this episode today include the other free cities like Lys and Kohor, which we have episodes on. So now we've done four of the nine free cities. The Stepstones, of course, came up quite a lot. Kingdom of Sarnor, as well as Ib. And yeah, one other one that I'm forgetting now that I've forgotten, but that's enough. That's plenty. Plus, all of our Valar Reritas for especially Dance of the Dragons, where a lot of Illyrio stuff is and Tyrion stuff. Riding in the, in the palanquin with him is some really juicy material. It's just all discussion, which, you know, there's so much that can come from that. Tyrion and Illyrio, they're just a, a great pairing for chatter. So that's another good recommendation. So if you want us to cover a different free city, well, you better get involved in the voting. You can join up with our Patreon for that. That said, votes will be coming a little less often in the short term as we get closer to Valar Reredis for Fire and Blood. 
That's coming in August. I think y'all have two more votes. For yeah. I mean, for, for for the short term. Lots more votes in the long term. Yeah, because we have a few weeks off. Well, one or two weeks off and one episode already chosen. We're going to do Under the Dragon's House Hightower for one of our episodes. That'll be the period of from the conquest till the dance. It took us two episodes to do that for the North. But for House Hightower being just one house, I think we can do it in one. But maybe it'll just be a really long episode. Maybe that'll be part of your extra hour there that we'll fit in. One way or another, we got plenty more content to go. The topics well remains deep and fully unplumbed. We have much more to go. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for supporting us. If you're one of those who do, do so, does so, <laughs> either way, if you do so or does, we appreciate it. Thanks to Nina for her great notes. A lot of great takes on the future of Pentos and navigating the difficulties and complexities of Delirio, the Tatter Prince, and Danny and Tyrion and, and all that information and order it might come out in, how it might go. It's, it's really super interesting. George has done a great job of setting it up without making it clear on what's going to happen. A lot of these things we can kind of see where it's going. This is one where it's like, I could perceive a lot of different directions for this to go, even though some things are pretty likely to happen. Like Danny's not going to get killed by the Pentashi. But pretty much everyone else, other than like Tyrion, <laughs> is like good die or change sides or I don't know what. But yeah. And, you know, not that those two characters couldn't die later. It's not in Pentasi. <laughs> and there's a lot more to the character's arc than die or not die, right? Yeah, they're, absolutely. They're, they're, the sort of directions and mysteries and whatnot sprouting out from this are infinite discounting who dies or doesn't. Yeah, it's like one of those things where this is one of those episodes where a lot of times the episode feels this way because there's never, it never ends, like the things we can say about these things. But this is one where I feel like it feels particularly incomplete because of all the plot lines that are just getting big now. Yeah, and that we could only yeah. guess on. And there's like with George's imagination, we couldn't possibly guess all the things that he's considering. It's, it's almost like a chess game where there's like... Or asking. There... There are these, yeah, there are like these if-then questions, but there's several different ones. And just going to like the third or fourth level of an if-then, when you have like eight different options to work with, it, you're getting to thousands of potential outcomes really fast. Yeah, so. that's where the phrase permutation starts to come in because it's like there's so many, it becomes beyond possibilities. <laughs> there's so many, yeah. it's like possibilities doesn't, doesn't do it justice. So, yes, also thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Bran for the music and video intro and Michael Klarfeld for the same, plus the maps behind us. And to our engineer, who's going to have a little extra work to do today, given the power outage there that knocked out our, <laughs> made our episode split up. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, you wouldn't have noticed that. But if you're watching on YouTube, yeah, you certainly did. <laughs> Assuming you got far, which most of you did, because y'all tend to watch most of the most if not all the episodes so a lot of y'all were just like hey what happened it's just it just stopped yep well that's live streaming for you live stream life stuff happens but we'll be back with another soon and you know what to do in the meantime Valar reread us 